Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hey, everyone. It is your good friend, Dr. David Perotin from down here in the North Star Recording Studio, wishing you a very happy April 4th. Um, it is below normal temperature again today, but could be 60s by the weekend. So I'm holding out hope. And that would be awesome. But uh, right now, still cold and chilly. couple things on deck. If you live in the greater Portage, Wisconsin area, um, especially if you're in District 2, you're going to the uh, ballot box tomorrow. You're going to the uh, cast your vote. Um, I am on the ballot for City Council, District 2. So the polls will close. 24 hours and we'll see what happens. Um, so that's exciting. Um, I believe that the next three years, which is the term, if I'm voted in, the next three years will shape the next 30 years of my community. And what I specifically mean by that, I just got a notification that I'm live. That's good. Um, what I mean by that is we have the largest subdivision um, in the works right now. So the city doesn't, uh, <laughs> what a city does is, is they work with a developer. The city's not a developer um, of housing. Excuse me. What the city does is puts in the water, sewer, parks, um, things like that, utilities, um, access to that. So that's exciting. Um, the city has an aging pool, an indoor pool, which is in a school. Um, which is being closed at the end of the year. So school is it's old, it's being closed, and the indoor pool is in that school. And the city and the school district collaborate um, with that. So the, the city operates some lessons in the, the summer, swim lessons and so forth. So there would there's going to be some need to um, have a plan on how to replace that pool because the pool itself is aged and it is... Uh, progressively uh, wearing out kind of so you know what makes sense to retrofit this pool in a building that is not going to be used anymore so um, that will be a topic in the next couple of years here and then also we have an airport um, that is landlocked and as the area grows um, the there needs to be consideration of where to find land um, the city could annex, for example, and, and uh, have an airport. And there's certain things that have to go with that, like the so certain si size planes can come in. Things, um, so those those things will um, likely be thoroughly considered, if not action on all of those within the next three years. And like I said, those will shape the next thirty years. And then where the uh, the airport is now um, is prime real estate for housing development, but not saying <laughs> we would get rid of the airport um, unless there was another airport. No, uh, saying that, uh, oh, I guess that is what I'm saying is you'd have to have another airport developed and going before this other airport you would decide to repurpose. 
Um, but there are some exciting things. So with that, um, I wanted to also share here at the beginning that on Friday, April 1st, a weird day to release, release a book, April Fool's Day, but this book released. So it has been doing uh, very well, uh, velocity of information. And here I've got too many sheets over here on my left. So let's bring this up on Amazon. Let's kind of see how things are cooking right now with this book. Um, all right, we are going to do this and we're going to do share screen and let's share screen and share screen. Let's share the screen since we're at it. Okay. So the velocity of information, um, it officially, it still says April 11th, even, even though it released on April 1st. I don't quite understand why. This was the original release date, then they moved it up. Um, but it is the number one new release in educational psychology. Whoa! Whoa! So zippy, isn't that wild? So, um, so yeah, we are we are going to do this right now. Whoa! It is the number one new release in educational psychology. So wow, that is awesome. So it's good stuff. Um, but yes, uh, so let's see where it is doing here on sales rank. 33,000, uh, which is uh, good. So um, scholarly book, 471 endnotes. Um, so yeah, libraries are starting to add this. Uh, it was added into the Toledo library this morning. I get to see a glimpse of some of the libraries uh, from the dashboard where it goes, but not all of them. And every day now it's starting to populate into more libraries. So it's good, philosophy of information. So here's my favor to you before we get started. One, th this is in uh, hard copy, paperback and ebook. Um, paper Paperback is kind of right here, which is a very nice book. Um, and this is a, a more affordable price point. I actually kind of like paperback a, a little bit better because when I'm reading it, I mean, it's just, e it's easier. Pages turn a little bit easier. Takes a little more um, hardback is terrific, but uh, takes a little bit more to break in. So, um, if you know, please consider that or, or consider um, letting people know about it. I, there were a lot of uh, purchases last night, and here's something else. Right, do this for me. Do this for Doc. Find your website for your local library, and. They will either have a suggest new materials or they'll have an email address, right? And if you email them and you live there, right? <laughs> so this is your library and you say, I want you to um, consider the, you know, velocity of information um, came out in April here, you know, Dr. Prone, you get the ISBN number. If you have the title and whatever, just say it's, um, and we, I want this in the library. I want this in the library. Most times, libraries will add things to patrons' request. Um, I would say that's like an 80% right off the bat, um, they will do that. So please consider uh, contacting, it's Books of Bob. Please considering uh, contacting your, it'll take you three minutes to find the email address, copy down the title name and say, hey, I live here, this is my library. Um, I want you to consider adding this book, the best book out there, right for how we think during chaotic times. 
Like if this book was in the library, I would get this book. I would read this book. That's all you have to do. doesn't have to be anything big. And they'll be like, whoa. And the other part is just say like, I live here. This is my town. So, um, so yeah. So, and of course we have the, uh, the classic. It's kind of like the Big Mac here. Um, School of Airs. Rethinking School Safety in America. Uh, now up to 49 reviews. So we're just one review away from 50, which is like, whoa, pretty awesome. I remember when it got its first review, like how cool that was. So yeah, 49 reviews up on Amazon. Um, I will finish narrating the audio version, the audiobook on Friday. So I think we only have like 30 pages left to go. So we have a session Wednesday and then uh, Friday we'll finish up and then we'll do any retakes on Friday, but that shouldn't be much. Um, and then the the audio engineer will continue to finish out the files. So once I have all of the files then, I already have with Findaway Voices, uh, the PDF the companion document, upload it with uh, the figures and the references, stuff like that. Um, I'm saying it's going to release in July, the audiobook for School of Airs, but I think it'll be before then because when I have everything ready, there's no need to to wait other than um, you, you typically need to give about two, three weeks of lead time for it to start showing up in other places like, hey, it's going to start releasing an Audible and stuff. So Findaway Voices is the distributor, and then it's in Nook and Google Books and Scribd and Library Access, right? So... Um, yeah, that's exciting. And the paperback version of School of Airs releases. This book has a weird feel. I don't know if I dropped it or I goofed up the spine here. What's going on, Zippy? I know it looks okay. This book has gone everywhere with me. So I don't know. Spine might be getting a little more lax on this one. To see, this book is it's a travel everywhere with me. But this is coming out in paperback July 15th. So I don't know what the price point of that is, but the uh, hard copy is 30 so paperback will obviously be less than that. So all good things. Um, or call your library or, or email your library and say, hey, both these books. So uh, let's go over to the chat. And uh, first of all, before we go to the chat, today's topic and... Uh, is let me do this uh, deep fakes and false takes so in 2019 i presented on pbs and as part of that presentation when i got toward the end i was centering on avatar realism and deep fakes and i'm going to go back to some of the things that i said in that presentation that was july of 2019 and oddly or in a prophetic way I said that in 2022, looking at kind of where the data was going, what the experts were saying, um, we would start to see deep fakes at an international level, which would be very difficult to distinguish from authentic inf uh, takes, right? And we are seeing that, certainly, out of what's happening in, in Russia, uh, Ukraine right now. So um, we're going to, to talk about that. We're going to you know, what are deep fakes if you're kind of new to this and, you know, digital deep fakes. And then uh, let me go through here. Um, how do you how do you find the truth? Right. If you have deep fakes that are being used 
and give uh, an example of um, hacked reality. And then, um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of take it from there. So deep fakes and false takes. Um, I think right now, I would say deep fakes are the, are a top concern to international security and also um, a deep fakes can result in a rapid escalation to negative um, decisions being made, decisions that have negative uninformed outcomes. So let's look over here at the chat. It is our good friend Toy Town Inc. Hey, Toy Town. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Zippy's saying, if I drink any more caffeine, I'll start a fusion reaction, laugh out loud. Come on, Zippy, I don't think so, but be safe. Jim McIntosh, hey, Jim McIntosh, our good friend Solitude Surfers in the house, editing, so no typing. This is Jim. We're in the mid-50s in Chicago now. Polks of Bob, we are not there. So it is, uh, I don't know, maybe got to 40 today, but it was overcast and a bit windy. Um the weather folks said like the last 40 days have been, I think the fifth coldest on record for our area. And we are in for another three or four cold days. Like I stock the uh, burner, you know, I heat my house with firewood still have enough, but it won't be sixties until the weekend. And then it doesn't really stay in the sixties. Like next Thursday, I think it's supposed to be 47. So in the next two weeks, we still have maybe five days of 30s or 40s so you know and eventually you'll just break out of it right i mean it's not gonna be july 15th and 40 degrees but um it has been a cold one turn it into senior apartments to school so that's one of the things i've been talking about um but it's also in an area that wouldn't have much for parking it's an older building um not probably in a part of town that you would need apartments. Um, it's already a congested area of town that's had some development with parks and other things. So, um, but I'm, sh I'm sure there'll be considerations of what will happen with the building. Um, my thought is the building will eventually be raised. So, um, and then actually the space where the building is at. So on this, this triangular plot of land, the streets go one way on the right and the other way on the left. And it's an older part of town. Um, if this building, there was another school that was there, which was one of the first schools in town that was raised about 10 years ago. Um, and again, it, it was cost prohibitive to try to, to maintain it. Um, it was a good decision to get rid of that. And they put up a skate park there, which is used all the time by kids and adults. Like people use it. But uh, and there's a splash pad put in there now. Um, if this building was raised, if that decision was eventually made, it would open up for you know a couple soccer fields, right? And which would this would be a great part of town to to do that, um, expanding out kind of you know the playground, putting in some parking along the one side. I think it could really be an asset for town um, in that area to do something like that. So, um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens um, with that. So old people can't swim, Jim, that's Pokes of Bob. So Pokes of Bob right now in Chicago, you could get online, open up a browser, recommend the pin tweet, my book for the library in Chicago. It's Andrew, did I miss anything? So, 
Andrew, um, just if you're in District 2, vote for Doc. Uh, Jim McIntosh, that's what they did with the old school here. Partis public hall for rent another partisan year permits. Yeah. I've seen that happen, right? And that actually has happened here, you know, like with a church, for example, was renovated. It's just the structure, in my opinion, um, as someone who could be elected to a uh, city alder person, um, I, I don't see that that would be where the city would want to go with this. Um, so we'll, we'll see. And when we talk about pool, it is a pool, right? Pool is very expensive to maintain. Um, we're talking about a pool that's like, you know, 50, 60 years old and, and there are some structural issues, um, you know, with it. So the reality is, you know, you're not going to maintain a pool in a building in a huge building that otherwise is vacant. So there have have to be some decisions made there. Um, so yeah. Uh, which one has the largest print? So Jim, I actually think they both kind of have the same size print. Um, but if you get ebook, then you can make the print any size you want. So that's kind of a, a lot of people do that. They'll email me and say, Hey, I bought the ebook. Cause then I can, and then it's kind of funny because the ebook, you know, pages are relevant then, you know, instead of having 208 pages, the ebook can be 300 pages. Like if you increase the, the font, you know, just automatically kind of lays it out differently. So, um, but yeah, actually, yeah, it, the, the, the size of the paperback and the size of the hard copy are almost identical. Um, but actually when you get the print, it's the same exact print. Um, so I don't know exactly as I'm looking at this, I don't know what the font is, what maybe like 11 times new Roman, something like that. So, um, yeah, I'm, <laughs> so in those cases, I, I like very bright areas to, to read. Um, so, uh, so yeah, velocity of information will be an audiobook next year. It will be released and, uh, School of Errors, my first book comes out as an audiobook this summer, narrated by me. So that's been an awesome experience. I recorded here at a local studio in a hundred and I think 70-year-old building. And so the sound engineer and I've been working on that from day one. And I, I feel I could either do um, a, pr a presentation, you know, like and put it on this channel. Like, here's 10 things to know if you're going to narrate your book for the first time. Because there were there are things I never knew, um, and one was um, make a list of words, for example, to practice ahead of time. Go through like names and things like that that might throw you off, um, which is maybe a little more obvious. But another one was like um, take a drink of water or tea every ten minutes, like space space up every ten minutes. Don't try to do it like every hour, like every ten minutes, and like whoa, did that make a difference in? you know, the clarity of presentation, just breaking things up. Um, eating potato chips the night before because the extra amount of grease, like, you know, works with the vocal cords. And um, sometimes they do this with like major league pitchers before they go out for a game with their joints, right? You know, eat potato chips the night before. Uh, so um, chapstick, I'm not a big chapstick person, but um, have chapstick, you know, with you and apply it several times because especially with, you know, a P and an M and stuff like that, like, you know, just to have very crisp uh, sounds. 
that worked really well. Um, and then at like a one hour mark, you know, to get out of the booth and do something totally different. So where I'm at is a music studio. Um, so I'm in a, re a recording booth, which is audio. So it's a small booth. Uh, it's not meant to have instruments in there, but um, there are other areas where you go with instruments, but I get out and then the audio engineer will say like, play the drums for you know a minute or two, you know? And I don't know how to play drums, but you're doing something different. So you totally shift your mind from reading to whatever. And then, you know, you, you come back in. Um, one of the things too is like practice. I practice and read ahead and I'll, I'll read and I will watch the videos back. I'll put them like um, on a private YouTube channel and just listen to myself, try to figure out, okay, here's a part where I need to go back. Here's where I need to add a little more emphasis. I'm marking up a text ahead of time. Some of the tips on that, like highlight, especially if you're, if someone is, is being quoted, highlight that. So when you start to get into it, you know, you're going to in, inflect that, change it. So, you know, it's somebody else. Um, but yeah, I've got all these little tips to use. Um, the Kindle one. It's on a 50-inch TV. Oh, my God. Is the print the same size as both? I think it is. I do not own a Kindle. Yeah, I don't It. I don't know exactly how it works on other stuff you download it on. Um, sorry about that. Zippy. Uh, Jim can read on PC, too. I'll say, yeah. It's pretty universal now. Uh, deep fakes um, don't have to be that complex. I play audio clips for my uh, raid leader in World of Warcraft. Yeah. You're right. That's the thing, Andrew, we'll get into is um, people think when you talk about deep fakes, just people think, oh, it's got, you know, it's super sophisticated. And it's like, you know, you're watching a video and you can't tell if someone is authentic or not. And that is part of deep fakes. But deep fakes, you're right, don't have to be that sophisticated. And if people aren't really paying attention to deep fakes, um, I'll give an example of that when I when I, I'm going to read a chapter from the book, too. Um people just go with it, right? So if, if you're not calling a lot of attention to the deep fakes, then people aren't going to scrutinize them as much. They'll just go with what they expect is there. I mean, they kind of fill in the rest. Zippy, uh, feels like in the next five years, be dicey and surprising as a mass is awake in the year of deep fakes. In 10 years, most things are ignored, okay? Yeah, I think the next five years are going to be pretty crazy. Um, and I say that too, because as... Someone who, oh, just right here. Oh, let me check something here. So hang on. I need to, I'll be right back. So don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. As chaos erupts, torrents of conflicting yet urgent messages gush from media outlets. What is the magnitude of the incident? And what should people do to protect themselves? Dr. David P. Perodin teaches you how to prevent mental burnout by observing indicators and building a robust member check network. Reporter James David Dixon of the Detroit News proclaims, the velocity of information will empower its readers. Drawing on current events, history, interviews, and scholarship, the velocity of information is an education in the way people react and adapt to change in this fast-spinning world. Never has it been more important to sift facts and stories for truth and meaning. There are teachable moments on every page. 
by the velocity of information human thinking during chaotic times available from your favorite bookstore or online retailer all right everybody i am back so i had to let a cat um upstairs because the door was closed so but the cat is upstairs so um yeah uh, zippy's saying i think the next five years are going to be dicey and the next uh, 10 years most things ignored Right now, I teach aspiring school leaders, right? The thing is, with early deepfakes, like Reface app and stuff like that, they don't know what is authentic and what isn't. Um, and as this gets better in the next five years, how are you going to make that determination? So we'll get into that. Somebody shows you a video, uh, whether it be at a school or whether, whether it be at a workplace or something like that, and says, this happened. And, and you know, we, we put so much vesting into videos right now. Um, that it's going to be like, okay, how do I, what do I do in the meantime? Do I put this person on leave or do I put this, take the student out of athletics until this is, we are able to investigate this video where it looks like there's smoking, which would be a uh, violation of code of conduct. And the student's like, I wasn't smoking. Like that's a deep fake. So, um, and we're going to get down this path of schools will be marketed. This isn't happening yet. It will happen very quickly. Schools will be marketed software to detect deep fakes. Now, how effective that will be, I don't think it'll be that effective at all, but I think schools will go for it. And uh, because they're going to go to law enforcement, eventually law enforcement is going to be like, listen, we can't, <laughs> we don't have the resources every day to be investigating this. Plus, so we don't have technology that's any better than you. I mean, we can't spend $10,000 to identify if this video is a deep fake or not in time and res resources software or whatever. So um, schools will be marketed something and it might be a subscription base, right? Where if you have a video, um, you can upload it as long as it's like five minutes or less. And for $29.99, right? The software will make a determination if it's a uh, high competence deepfake, medium or low. Like they'll never come out 100% and say, <laughs> and they'll, they'll kind of give you ind indicators. I think this will happen. Like I don't, I don't believe the software exists anywhere yet. And then that'll be your basis as a school to make your decision or an employer or whatever. But there'll be like some base fee. Like you'll have to subscribe for like $400 a year. And then, you know, it'll be as a minimum. And then after that, it'll be a per use basis or something like that. Uh, it's crazy, but I think that's going to happen. Talked to a couple of people, and they said that's probably a model that could be endorsed. Uh, Books of Bob, slowly warm. I'm glad. I so am over the long winter. Just is not for me. Needs to warm up. Zippy, looking at uh, Hunter's laptop and other sub stuff. I do not think deepfakes are going to be that bad, but still, it'll take uh, uh, a decade for the public to get wise. So, um, okay. So yeah, I, I, I think the thing with deep fakes is we haven't seen them really un, unveiled in situations where let's say, um, in schools, right? A kid is saying, oh, this kid was smoking. And then, you know, they're, they weren't, but the deep fake shows that they are. And, and then they're removed off of a team. They don't get to participate in competitions or a chance for a state title. What if it's a divorce situation where one of the parents is presenting a deep fake trying to make the other spouse look angry or something like that to influence um, a judge? So I've read about that too, that the divorce courts um, 
are very aware that this type of evidence is going to be coming in very soon and they don't know how to respond to it. Um, so I, I think we're going to see these things deployed differently. Um, think about if even, you know, people on the job, right? Um, no matter what you, what you, what your position is, right? From a postal carrier to, you know, um, there could be instances where someone could manipulate and a, a, a deep fake to make it look like you did something um, that was violating the rules or unethical or whatever. Um, what would it, what would your employer do in that case? Right? Cause the clock starts to tick. Do they say, Oh, we're going to put you on a paid or unpaid leave for five days or 10 days while we look into this. Even if that happens, there's something called a liar's dividend, which I did a show on. Liar's dividend means if you accuse somebody of something or if multiple people accuse them or they get accused multiple times of something, even if they're, it's not substantiated, right? They're, these are all alleged things and the person is never found, quote unquote, guilty of these. There becomes a doubt in a number of people's mind of, well, you know, they were accused of it three times and each time it was found that it wasn't substantiated. That was unsubstantiated, but I'm not sure, right? They've been accused of it three times. There's a thing of a liar's dividend saying, you know, if you accuse somebody of something, you erode some of their credibility just by making that accusation. So that is something and that we, we need to start preparing for. So we'll get into that. Um, Jim is saying... Um, why not have the soccer fields by the newer schools? They they do. And they have soccer fields actually um, on the other side of town by the, uh, where our county seat, so the county fairgrounds has. So they're kind of in two different two different areas. But yeah, the school complexes in my, t in my town is going to be concentrated largely on one campus right now, which is good, right? Um, and there's a little bit of space to expand there too. So uh, they could they could add in some more playing fields, but they have ample kind of playing fields where this complex is, is located. Um, so that's an asset. I've seen a couple school districts that have been fortunate enough to have that scenario work out where everything is kind of on one campus, you know, like on one like 15, 20 acre, you know, plot of land. Um, so then, you know, if you have elementary students who are, you know, want to go over to the high school to, to see, you know, a play or something like that. They just have to walk across their playground, get over to the high school. And if you're sharing staff, I mean, which all schools do, it's incredibly efficient to have this type of setup. Um, central office is also there. The new central office building is right there on the campus. So a lot of pluses. The minus of it is that uh, traffic is a problem. And now as it becomes more dense, in this residential area, uh, there are more traffic issues. So one of the things actually I want to investigate if I'm elected, I'll probably do this either way, but if I'm elected on, onto city council, 3M has a new highly reflective uh, paint for sidewalk or crosswalks that uh, they came out with. And even during the day, like it's very substantially noticeable. And I want to look more into that of, of, because this is an area now which will have even more students with the school closing down. It's a busier street that goes by it. And uh, I, I think it could make a difference to have these very 
uh, bright uh, sidewalks. Um, so anyway, I'm going to look into that. Andrew's saying, someone made a deepfake of the World of Warcraft character bug abusing, which is a bannable offense on the private server. I proved it was fake because the spell damage was the wrong number. Okay, yeah. So Andrew's right on this, right? So, you know, Andrew's looking into this. He's figuring out, he can point out the dis discrepancies and say, here's why it's fake. Now, imagine, though, if it's like a teacher in a school or administrator or an employer or something like that, and something is, is put forward how are they going to identify what is authentic and what is fake? Like these will be, be entire new departments in schools, in police departments, in employers, right? Especially larger employers, you will have almost kind of, uh, it'll be something like an authenticity uh, verification department, right? That will be a thing within five years. And um, the the purpose because you could you'd have such a disruption to your integrity of a school system of of a company so forth if people were being um, wrongfully accused of things via deep fakes deep fake you know avatars deep fake uh, videos and you know you you would perpetually be be putting people on leave or terminating people right and. So you're going to have to have some way to bolster and to to respond to this, and and also the courts, right? Especially uh, divorce courts. So this will be a thing in the next five years. And if your expertise area is detecting uh, deepfakes, you know, kind of like a handwriting expert, right, and things like that. Um, by the way, like every book I sign is different. Like you could take a handwriting expert, and they could look at all like all the books I sign in, and now they'd be like. These were sent out by like 24 different people. So <laughs> it's really weird. Even though I practice my signature, like I look in, look in the books and I'm like, it looks different everyone. That's why I stamp it with the signature here to make it authentic. So my, my official blue stamp. But, um, but this is a big thing. So we've got to be prepared for this. I think I'm going to write a journal article about this. Um, and, you know, maybe a little bit more, but at least a journal article about this. Jim is saying, well, for library copies, large print is nice instead of two separate copies. That's why I'm asking for, yeah. So Jim, I don't, I mean, it just comes in the print that it does from the publisher. Um, and I I think, and I'm with you, like I think ebook, then I resize things like with my ebook version that make it comfortable for me on an, on an iPad. So um, that works. And then I, I can also do a little more high contrast. So yeah, I'm I'm with you, buddy. And also, uh, Jim, just so you know, the book will be out in 2023 as an audiobook. So that's another way to to take in the velocity of information. So I appreciate it. Um, all pro Leminton. Every time I see that bike, I appreciate it, and it makes me sad because I can't bike here because it's cold and rainy. It's still winter. Videos might lose credibility if deep fakes get too strong. You're right. So what you have as anything that's presented as a video of an event, right? Or a video, I mean, it's, we'll get into that, right? But you're absolutely right. The credibility is going to, uh, it's going to be questioned and it's going to erode. And even the credibility of things in the past, people will look and say, well, this is, right? Like they've come out with manipulated videos of FDR and Hitler and so forth, right? Um, it's going to be weird because it's not only the present, it's the past. And that was one of the things in 2019 when I presented on PBS TV, 
as I said, the early deep fakes right now at, during 2019 were deep fakes being made of past presentations, even if they're still photos, for example, still meaning like 20 different photos of, you know, Tesla or, you know, whatever. Um, and then from those photos, they're being manipulated to make it look like the person is saying something. Um, they can actually, I think the Mona Lisa, for example, they took in, created um, some uh, video and audio uh, production off of that. But so one of the things, for example, is in the velocity of information, this is getting into talking about like, you know, if you're going and you're recording that your store, right, is running short on things, you submit that video to your primary collector, talks about how to build a member check in here, that there's metadata, where it happened, you know, when the video yeah, was shot, who shot it, all of that stuff is in there. It's all captured. It's provenance, P-R-O-V-E-N-A-N-C-E, provenance, the order. And this book, for example, also has 471 endnotes. So this book of itself um, is a counter against um, how people will misremember things. It's amazing because with the velocity of information now that I go out and I, I start to talk to groups on this and I get interviewed on this, right? Um, I will go back and say, you know, one of the things right away in the book, I think like page four, we start off with essential versus non-essential. There was a day in March of 2020, all of us woke up and we were deemed, we were sorted as essential or non-essential. And the response that I get to that from people is, oh yeah, that did happen. It's not the response of, oh yeah, um, you know, here's how it affected me and what I thought and whatever. No, it's this pause. People forget that until you bring it up. They don't deny it. But I explicitly get into examples of how that happened. You know, like uh, Carl Mankey in Ossawa, Michigan, a barber, you know, who was had his doors, you know, padlocked shut. So this is really substantial stuff that we, unless we have it thoroughly documented, it will be modified. It'll be modified or we'll misremember it. Right. So and that's where deep fakes could come in. Right. I took 13 videos during the early 2020 closings of the pandemic. Um, my youngest daughter and I went out. She uh, was basically like a news re news reporter. I wrote about it in the book. Uh, the last team information here and have some pictures of things that, that we captured, some still photos, things like that. Um, we had places that we went 13 different times. We went to the parks, a couple parks in town, the park right down the road from us. We went to her school. We went to the parking lot by the hospital. We went to the parking lot by a Walmart. We went to the armory because that's what dad wanted to see, right? I wanted to see the armory because I'm thinking, well, you know, w w let's let's get a baseline here. What what do I see at the armory? Is there an uptick? If there's an airport right next to the armory, um, are we seeing you know more equipment being brought in or whatever? I don't know. So we had a list of places that we were going to go. We went there every single time over four months. These thirteen trips, we set up the tripod, um, and she would start off by saying, "Here's what I think I'm going to see here." today, right? And we'd have this worked out ahead of time. Like, what do you think when we go to these places? What do you think you're going to see? And then it, what's different? And then also like, what's different from the last time we were here? Oh, like this is happening or this is happening. 
then we would record it. So nothing that was invasive. You know, we weren't going into lobbies of hospitals or something like that. But um, there were some re important reasons to do that. One is to avoid um, this whole deep fake, deep avatars, things where people can show you images of, of what's happening and try to convince you of that. We authentically went out and saw it for ourselves, recorded it for ourselves, and timestamped all of this stuff, right? So it is, it is there. It shows a progression through time. The second part was, this is in the velocity of information, not so much related necessarily to our topic today, but it was a, a transition for her through time. It's new experiences. It's comparing one thing to another, moving her through time. That's really tough for younger kids during the pandemic when things are shut down. Even now, um, as inflation is limiting experience, there's still some pandemic stuff out there, right? I mean, um, but that, that all came to play. Those 13 videos, though, never got uploaded to YouTube. They were just things that we um, created ourselves, but thoroughly timestamped, did all of the metadata, and then um, was a way for us to authenticate what was happening. And will be a way to remember correctly what was happening, not to miss, to have misinformation or misremember what was happening. Um, Zippy is saying a video or audio is nothing unless from an unquestioned source, you have to compile numbers. You do, right? So Zippy's right on. So one of the things in philosophy of information is the member check. The member check, I had Brian in the Bronx. Um, let's see which picture I have here. Is it Brian in the Bronx? No, it's not. Um, but I had Brian in the Bronx. Uh, I had Chuck Mack in uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, friends out in uh, Utah. And they were telling me what was going on. And they were sending photos, doing little videos of what was happening in their settings. So I'm trying to find, well, anyway. But um, but yeah, so all of that was, was happening in real time. They would check in every three days. And, you know, we were able to keep a, a pace of what was happening. So that, that was your authentic source. Now, the thing with sources that people don't get, so a reporter asked me this. We sat down and, and the reporter interviewed me about the book. And, and then she said, well, tell me about the, um, tell me about the 1918 pandemic and how like this pandemic is different. And I paused and I said, well, um, a few things. One is I didn't, this really isn't a book about pandemics or the response to the pandemic. The pandemic the pandemic is a shared experience we all went through. So it's a scaffold. It's a skeleton that I built things off of. So it's in here, but it's not a book about the pandemic. And I said, the other thing is like, I didn't really research the 1918 pandemic. Um, I'm, this book isn't comparing one pandemic to another. But one thing that you can note, right, is that studies have been done, which I wrote about in the velocity of information is when you have sources, people will, will try to get sources that are very close to them. That's their instinct. So they'll try to be validated by their mother or dad or their brother or their neighbor, right? Um, so they'll be validated by, they'll try to seek validation from people who are super close to them. And usually those are people that have the exact same information virtually that they do, right? <laughs> so you know, like if we all live in a town that is flooding and I'm asking my neighbors and whatever, you know, what's your take on this and things like that? 
Um, that's going to be different than asking people who are outside of town, you know, or like, you know, miles away, what's happening with weather. I don't know, but um, the, it's kind of like when I, I interviewed Nikolai Razavayu, the Soviet cyclist who was cycling, cycling in Kiev um, a day after Chernobyl, which is interesting because he insisted Kiev be spelled K-I-E-V, but in, in modern media, it's K-Y-I-V, <laughs> so which is the, the, I, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't quite get that. So I spell it differently. I spell it how Nikolai wanted me to spell it. But, um, but like he's saying, like, if you would have just asked people around you, which he was doing, you know, like his cycling team that was in Kiev, like what's going on? They're like, I don't know. You, like, you see the same thing we do. We don't know anything different than you. But once he was able to get out at night with his Selga transistor radio and get to a high point when the KGB dampened their jamming of radio signals and hear from Radio Liberty, oh, you know, which who knows how accurate that's going to be, but you know, there's radiation detectors, you know, high, high radiation levels and nuclear uh, accident here at Chernobyl. Oh my goodness. So the part there is like, you need to get a member network, which is greater than your area, right? So you need to talk to people who live in different areas um, and also maybe different countries to figure out what was going on. So I wrote about that and how I did that. And also how Joe Dolio did that with his member check networks. Um, so going back to the pandemic of 2000 or of 1918, most people in 1918, I mean, you know, phones were still relatively new. And if you were out in the country, you didn't have a phone. So, um, the information you're getting about the pandemic was coming in from the newspaper or it's just coming in from your neighbors or your church or whatever. So it's more reinforcing than it is informing. It's not going to be new information. It's just going to be people who think the way that you think. So, um, so because because the reporter said, well, you know, there were people in 1918 thought the the pandemic was a conspiracy. I said, yep, you know, could be right. I didn't study it that deeply, but again, looking at the time though, it's unlikely most people would have been accessing someone who lived more than five miles from them. So you're just getting information from people who see the same things, who live the same things, who go to the same grocery stores, to just some church and whatever. And that doesn't help you at all as a member check. So that was the point I made in the book is, you know, with the member checks that we're able to do today um, through different means, right? Um, you can find out authentically what's happening from people all over the world and which informs you a lot better. But um, so let's go here to Martin. Um, just like anything, you need to know where the video came from. How do we stop people from faking it? Yeah. So you're right on, right? So just as we're at this tip of the iceberg of how do we know what's, yeah, uh, faked, you know, newspaper, video, things like that. And it's this whole thing, Liar's Dividend, which I did a show on a while back. So if you go into Safety PhD, where all of my stuff is, and just type in Liar's Dividend, you'll find that show. But there's, it's real powerful, right? Because somebody accuses you, let's say wrongly of something, right? You're, you are innocent, but they make this allegation. So then while it's being investigated, it is an alleged instant, whatever, whatever it is. Um, during that time, and then likely following that time, but there is this thing called the liar's dividend, meaning if someone levels that accusation against you, it erodes your credibility. It brings doubt into some people's mind. 
Uh, again, even if it's unsubstantiated, if, if you're completely vindicated, right, all of the evidence and things like that, it, there's still some people who'll be like, oh, wow, you know, like maybe there's some truth to this. So there's enough in this is part of, you know, just politics and nations and propaganda and stuff like that. Of, of there's, there's enough um, to be gained by throwing the, the liar's dividend out there and put it in play. Um, so Jim Singh, what if the kid was vaping, but it was modified? That's happened. Absolutely happened. So um, as I, again, I teach the uh, school leadership classes, that's happened. There's case studies in the last two years. Uh, there was a girl who was a cheerleader who was removed from her cheerleading squad because this video was presented that she allegedly was vaping and it was a deep fake. But by the time the school figured it out and things like that, she had missed a certain amount of time on the team. That's the thing. Like, what will be the way to identify that these things are deep fakes because the technology is not out there. The, the staff power is not out there. And then in the meantime, what do you do? right while you're trying to figure this out does that cheerleader get to keep cheering during the investigation or are they removed from the team during the time of the investigation most schools will remove but uh, i can tell you this is this is the part that is absolutely um i wouldn't say it's terrifying to me but i see that it is approaching um at a super high rate of pay, uh, speed right speed velocity toward us like it's coming and uh, it, it is it is crazy how unprepared, and I don't even know like how you get prepared for this. So we'll kind of go over that. Uh, Zippy saying, I wonder when the crescendo will hit when the public half understands deepfakes. Either way, a few years until then, I wonder if professionals will take a couple of years to catch it. Yeah, I don't know. The next five years, I think, will be really dicey with uh, with deepfakes and reality. And I mean, just imagine if these people have to create, you know, have to pause if they're getting information of is this authentic or not, you know, so this is our good friend, New York outcast. Hello, doc and everyone I'm listening, but can't chat. Appreciate you being here. New York outcast very much. Um, there are ways to defeat deepfakes. So Jim, yeah, share some of those. I mean, there are, there are technical ways. I'll also say like in following some of the, um, like uh, Teresa Payton, some of the top experts in deep fakes, um, they're caught there. There are costly ways and even deep fakes that have infiltrated the U S government and deep and uh, avatar realism have not been detected for months. Um, and we're not talking about like hundred thousand dollar campaigns here. We are talking about maybe one person running something. So um, the thing is, Again, who's going to do this? What does the training look like? There is nothing out there right now. So again, you know, this is where I kind of get punchy with School of Errors, and I never got into deep fakes in here, although like that would be a good second book, like rhetoric versus reality, kind of build it off my PBS presentation, get into deep fakes and say, um, what are schools, what's their game plan for this and a board of education and policies and, and how much they're going to allocate toward funding a department? Is it going to be a branch of human resources? Will it be a de department of, you know, a branch off of technology to investigate this? Because you're not going to be going to your local law enforcement with this. I mean, you might. They're likely going to tell you, hey, we have like, you know, two people here. We have other things going on in the city. We're not, you know, 
there's there's not a lot you're going to get from us. Um, so what is what is the process for this? And again, I think it's going to come from vendors who will sell software that they will say detects deep fakes and they'll have different levels of of uh, confidence with that. So they'll say high, medium, or low. So they don't like, you know, they don't get sued themselves as saying, well, this was, you know, you said this was a deep fake and it wasn't a deep fake, but, um, and then schools will jump at that because once schools get hit up with a few of these things, they'll be turning in all directions saying, what can I do? And so there's money to be made hand over fist, but obviously the deep fakes will advance faster than the software. And I just, you know, you're not going to remove a human element from this. At, so it's it's really weird. Um, but the thing is, nobody on a school side I've seen is prepared for this. At a government side, it was 2019 that the um, U.S. government held its first um, congressional uh, meeting about uh, the impact of deepfakes. Let me bring that up. I used this in my 2019 PBS presentation. So let me bring up the actual slide from that. So, um, yeah, well, let me do a few things here. Let me do this. So this is from my P PBS presentation, but um, open over here and a little bit bigger. Okay, I'm gonna share a few slides with you. So this is from my PBS presentation. Um, here we go. Okay, so this is, I, I presented in July of 2019 on PBS, a live presentation. It airs quite a bit, by the way. <laughs> so I wake up in the morning and there'll be like people, hey, it was in Jacksonville or it was in Reno or upper New York or wherever last night, you know, it showed or yesterday. So people in my hometown, it shows here quite a bit in Wisconsin, different times on PBS programming. So uh, they'll identify me now as you're the guy who was on, you're, you're the guy on TV, right? So that happened to me the other day. I'm like, yep, uh, TV. So, uh, but so this is uh, Michaela Sosa, um, chess club, your book, Varsity uh, Spanish, uh, because I like my hair with the sweater. So let's look at this. This was a slide from my PBS presentation. Um, that is an avatar. That is avatar realism. Um, that is not a person. Um, so Michaela Sosa does not exist as an authentic person. This is an avatar. And this was from 2019 and before. So if you're looking at that, right? Um, and I didn't tell you this, you'd be like, okay, there's a, it's a yearbook thing of uh, Michaela Sosa. So let's go to our next thing. There are some other photos from her. Uh, again, these are uh, photos I presented in 2019 on PBS. In that context, they're here for critique also. So um, as you look at these, you know, um, these are not authentic. This is not a, a person. These are all, these are defects. So you could say, oh, I can kind of pick it out here at the face and stuff. But now just think like three years, how much is this is advanced. But, or you could say, oh, they were using a filter, right? And so they didn't want to present, but deep fake, deep fake. Um, avatar realism marketing. So little Michaela, who this is, she's an Instagram model and a music artist claiming to, to be from Downey, California. Her first post to Instagram was April 22nd, 2016. So six years ago, literally, we're already in April, six years ago, 
She had a million social media followers. They thought she was authentic. She's fictional. She's managed by a team of engineers, marketers, and dreamers, what they what they say. This, this was kind of revealed around, I think, the time that I was doing this PBS presentation. So the argument was that she crossed the Uncanny Valley. So the Uncanny Valley's the thought that if um, deep fakes and avatars become too realistic, we kind of we can detect that as humans, right? It doesn't seem right. One of the the examples is the movie uh, The Polar Express. So watching the characters in The Polar Express, or if you Google this, right, like a lot of kids or even adults, like a lot of people had a very negative reaction to the characters because they were approaching the uncanny valley, which is where it gets hard to distinguish uh, what is um, an avatar from what is authentic. And that um, Polar Express was was approaching that, right? People didn't feel right about the characters because they were getting closer to be authentic, but they were still identified as not authentic. But um, the thought was that, that Michaela Sosa crossed the Uncanny Valley. So um, let's go on here. So, so yeah, this was back again, 2019, um, weaponized deep fakes. And at that time I had wrote that Samsung engineers develop realistic talking heads that can be generated from a single image. Artificial intelligence can even put words in your mouth and uh, such as Mona Lisa or any of you. Um, so let me go back. Let's get out of here. Let me see if I can find that video that I showed on PBS in 2019. It was a short clip. So we didn't have any copyright issues with it, right? I, right, Zippy. So yeah, PBS had to uh, approve that. Um, so let me find it because it's about twenty seconds long, but it's really good. And is it here? No, is it here? Is it here? Um, is it here? I don't know. I can find my my whole presentation, but uh, yeah, here I found it. Okay, so I'm going to uh, bring it up on the screen for you guys. So this is what I showed. It's like 22 seconds long. It's what I showed on PBS. So this was in 2019. So living portraits, you know, photos of Marilyn Monroe that make it look like she's speaking, right? Um, and this is all done th through technology back in 2019. So look at this, same type of thing, one still image and make it look like somebody is speaking from a still image. So the thought there was, if you could grab a still image of somebody or a couple still images or 10 seconds of them talking, you'd have a pretty good shot of producing um, a fairly convincing deep fake. Again, that was 2019 technology. We're three years beyond that. Um, and I said it was kind of, it was done with historical figures. So like, you know, this is where, you know, things that started off. So there's the link to it if you want to freeze it and go to it and find it. So um, deep fakes in schools. This is was a concern I presented on. Um, for $20, you could become the target of deepfakes. Again, a Reface app, not to speak disparagingly of Reface app. There's other apps out there. Um, 
the app itself. I have nothing against it's how a person chooses to use an app or anything else, right? They could modify an audio recording, but uh, but we see the the capacity of the technology. Per the intelligence community, deepfakes will be indistinguishable from, from authentic images and videos in the year 2022. Okay, so which we're at now, so three years later. You can have a full text edit to make you appear to say, say anything. We've seen this, right? You can Google, um, you know, Putin speeches, Alinsky, Biden, you know, Trump, whatever, and you can have these mod these speeches that look like they're authentic. And again, if they're shown um, in a context where people are already assuming or or anticipating negative information, that's one of the reason reasons why um, War of the Worlds with Orson Welles. The, the broadcast in 1938 was so effective in convincing people that the U.S. The world was being invaded by Martians. Um, I wrote about it in the velocity of information. People were expecting bad news. They were expecting bad news about you know the the war in Europe at the time. You know the, this is before the U.S. entered the war, but they were anticipating bad news. We were still in the depression, dust bowl, things like that. So people are just primed for bad news. So if people are already primed for bad news and you deliver into that, you're already selling something that they've, you don't have to do a lot of convincing, right? To do that. They're not going to be very skeptical. Um, so again, when people are getting this news of, oh, like there's Martians invading, um, the majority of people, there, there was an interview done by a um, professor and research team out of Princeton University shortly after that of people who had heard the broadcast, right? 1938. Um, the number one thing, thing people did is they they contacted somebody else and told them about the Martians. They didn't turn the channel to see if something else was going on. Oh, like, oh, this is only a one-channel thing. Like, this must be a performance. Or they didn't do anything to verify. All they did was pass the news. So that is something, too. Like, people would try to pass the news. That's what we have to be very aware of right now. And in the velocity of information, I caution about it and say it happens right now. We pass the news. Um we don't analyze the news. We don't verify the news. We just want to pass it. We want to be the first person who gives it to somebody else, right? Even though we haven't vetted it. So uh, very real. So going back here again with those videos, there's no known countermeasure. There is, right, for a price. I mean, if you had a whole team and software and stuff like that. But realistically, a practical countermeasure to this, like are you going to have your assistant principal look at this video and say, yeah, it looks like a deep fake or no. Like that would never hold up if challenged. Uh, so how will schools respond? It was just terrifying. Let's go on here to the next slide. This is the uh, cover of the book, So You've Been Shamed by John Ronson. I, I enjoy that book. Uh, it's, it's a book that I have. Um, so this, this has been out for a while, but he talked about somebody who made a uh, post to social media as they were going on an airplane and it was misinterpreted from what they thought, right? And by the time they got off, like their phone was, you know, buzzing and stuff like this. And and basically their whole career had been ruined, lost their job, other stuff. But it is the book, So You've Been Shamed, Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. I recommend it. It's also out there in an audiobook. Deepfake consequences. We talked about this thing of a liar's dividend, right? If you accuse somebody of doing something or someone accuses somebody else of doing something, no matter kind of what that position is, right? Um, you know, um, somebody accusing a political official or a you know, head of a business or something, or even a coworker, or if it's a divorced couple, one accusing the other, there's it erodes trust, introduces this liar's dividend, elevates social media bullying to an unimaginable level. Could you imagine, like, you know, deep fakes being released of 
anybody in, in like, do you, how would you counter that? I mean, it would take up all of your time. And as you counter that, you're working against a liar's dividend. Uh, now it's almost to the point you have to prove that you did not make a threatening statement. We have seen video come out of, of different events and it might be somebody a block away that shot video from their screened in porch of an event. And that video gets to the media and within hours, the governor or somebody is making a statement based upon that one video clip that might've been 200 feet away of an event, right? There's no other context. So uh, courts, juries love video, media loves video. Um, so you get immediately put into this defensive uh, position. Psychological well-being of students or staff, anybody involved in this, a reputation can be ruined in minutes. And if you're a teenager, I believe there's a real uh, risk here for self-harm, possibly suicide um, because of deep fake consequences. Um, but yet we do not see this in conferences. And that's where I bring up to people. I'm like, here, look at your state, um, whatever, you know, school board association. And, and uh, let's look at their conferences that they're doing or their your organizations, right? What are they providing for services for you? So we outline these things. And at some point I start to bring this stuff in and say, what are they doing to help you prepare for, you know, deep fake allegations that are um, against staff, board members, students, whatever. Um, what does that look like? Is there a sectional in this conference, right, that has to do with that, how policy might look? And they'll be like, no. And I'll be like, right, I have the conference thing. I downloaded it too. There's nothing. People tend to play to their comfort zones in these conferences. They play to vendors. Vendors pay you know, big money for a booth. And they'll say, here's a bullet, bulletproof film or here's whatever that we're selling. But the reality is these are the things that are facing you um, and will be there as you turn the corner into the year 2023 and so forth. And um, as a conference, you know, if you're organizing a conference as a state director of school boards or whatever that is, like you've got to bring in people who can answer these questions or bring in your, you know, legal counsel to start feeling what should policies look like? Maybe what should a procedure look like? Does a student stay out of school or staff member? while this is being investigated or are they there? What? And that's where I kind of get stern, you know, and I'm like, you've got to do, um, you know, these things aren't comfortable to do. It's not your wheelhouse. It's a lot easier to talk about things like how to get engagement from the community and stuff like that. Yes, yes, yes. But you have to address this. There's, that's a non-negotiable. You have to do that. You're cowardly. If you don't, you have to address this. And, you know, that, that is that is 100% the point. You need a breakout section specifically on what I have right here. This needs to be a breakout informed by an attorney, maybe like a school board or something where a school has said like, yeah, we had this situation here. Though. We handled it. Here's what, what we learned from it. Here's what we would do different. Um, and what professional development looks like, so on. Um, that needs to happen. So if I was to write a compliment to School of Errors, like School of Errors 2, um, Rhetoric versus Reality, this would be a big part of it. This would be half the book. Um, how to prepare from a policy standpoint um, and, and professional development standpoint and procedural standpoint. What do you do? Because you could you could it's wipe out everybody. You could lose so many of your staff, um, you know, students and things like that. It, it could create a situation where the entire system would no longer be functioning. So let's go back and uh, 
got a couple other video or clips here. So this is another slide. June, June 2019, deep fakes in public policy. U.S. lawmakers held their first hearing devoted primarily to the threat of artificially generated imagery. So it's pretty scary, right? Like this was, obviously you can come back and say, yeah, Dave, but right, you know, the CIA, other intelligence agencies, they've been on this for a long time. Yes, they have, obviously. But you don't, you, your first congressional, um, you know, meeting on this, like uh, you're hearing on this, right, was June of 2019, which is <laughs> pretty late in the game. So what's changed since then? Well, you know, California has a law in place that you can't within like 60 days of an election have artificial generated uh, avatars or deep fakes of people. Even if you're spoofing them, like you can't do that. Um, but it's pretty wild west out there, right? Um, and this is accelerating at a crazy rapid rate. So another thing I'm wondering too on this um, so that's kind of all I had on that. So another thing I'm wondering is, will we get to the point, we'll go to the questions here in the chat in a section, will we get to the point where you will be purchasing, remember um, identity theft insurance, right? Like LifeLock and like maybe your insurance carrier would say, hey, like if you get, you know, your identity stolen, we you can have a policy and we'll pay up to like, I don't know, 10000 or $100,000 to help get your identity back and stuff. I think it's the same thing's going to happen on deepfakes. I think you're going to have a, a policies coming out, riders and all of that, which will, you know, different professions you're in, but whatever. And they're, I think it's going to be there in the next 12 months. And you will have a, a policy for if you are the recipient, the victim, the target of a deepfake, then you will have a insurance policy. But then like the insurance company, right? I mean, whatever will have to put in place or your professional organization that you belong to as a whatever doctor, physical therapist, accountant, you know, whatever it is, will have to have some process for coming forward um, and defending you, right, to investigate this. I think that's in the next 12 months. Um, so really wild, really wild stuff. So uh, signatures are all about peaks and valleys, consistency with certain flourishes and random layers. Yeah, I practice my signature a lot. It's still pretty crazy from signature to signature. So I don't know what it is. So I'd be the, if I ever made it, well, I'm not going to make it now. <laughs> not at my, not at 50 years old, but if I ever made it like in the professional sports or the NFL or something like, um, it would be like every signature I did would be like an authentic signature that I just, I, I don't, my signatures are very different from one to another. Just kind of a quirk. This is our good friend Bacon from Inglewood saying, oh, I went to teach for the bourbon and cookies. Doc promised me. Turns out there, oh, bacon, deep picks. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Martin say, I was expendable or essential worker. Yeah. The people that I wrote in my book that a lot of society offloaded their risk onto. Imagine how crazy it was, right? If you're working at a grocery store and they'll say, oh, we'll give you hazard pay of two or three dollars an hour more. And you're like, my life is at risk, right? Everybody's being told to stay home and you're going to give me instead of twelve dollars an hour. I get 14 now. I mean, it, it was pretty insane. Um, again, wrote about it. So I cried when I found out I was an essential worker. Yes, essential. Yeah. And there were people deeming to be. Uh, or, or trying to be declared inessential, or not inessential, not essential, I should say, um, including some of the, um, the workers uh, for 
uh, road construction projects. Wrote about it in, in the book too, right? So this whole thing of essential non-essentials really addressed uh, thoroughly in the book right away because all of us went through that. It's something you can associate with and get that, that feeling deep down inside right away in the book. Um, let's see if that, that much silicone can crush beer cans. Scary, man. Whoa. So let me move down here. And it's our good friend, Robert Ribbit Harrison. And uh, by the way, vehicle goes in for an oil change tomorrow. And it is zero weight oil. It's a fact. Tomorrow morning, zero weight oil. Um, Pokes Bob, nothing much bacon, just lurking around. It is Pokes Bob. So, all right, Pokes Bob. Um, good evening. It's our good friend Sass, one too many, who also did the cannonball run. He's known for that, the cannonball run. So, um, yeah, which now is more expensive because of gas. The lie can make it around before the truth can even put on his pants. Something like that's actually that's good, right? <laughs> so, that's it. And I think so, you know, this is the, this is the quirky thing, you know, when I do interviews or I talk to people, sign books and things like that. And, and now the question is, what's the trilogy? Like, what's the third book? And I'm like, Oh, I don't know. I'm not really, I wasn't really thinking about a third book. <laughs> um, but I'm like, well, there are, there are a couple of ways to go with that. I could kind of revert back to a school safety book, kind of like I did with the first one. Or I could kind of do a hybrid. And I think there's a hybrid out there to kind of go like with a John Ronson, So You've Been Shamed. But I think it's more rhetoric versus reality in and just how it's a study, like to go down and to interview people and stuff like that and say, in the next five years, like what is the defensive position um, for everybody in this whole deep fake avatar realism environment? If you've been the target, if somebody close to you has been the target, or just if you're like, I'm not even sure like what I'm seeing is authentic, right? Unless you're right there. But even in that case, it could still be a hologram or something like that. I mean, how how do you how do you rapidly modify your behaviors in an environment which is becoming less authentic and more propaganda driven? And I think that is a that would be a fascinating, fascinating book. Um, if I got the right people together to interview for that. So vapors should get punished more than smokers. I felt out that is Andrew. So, um, yeah, Jim is saying, um, you know, when NVIDIA released their 30 XX uh, series of desktop graphic cards, the CEO did a presentation from his kitchen. Guess what? It was nearly perfect four dimension render NVIDIA recently admit. So, oh my, see right there. So kind of no harm, no fall in that, but shows you the capability. People ask why I don't believe most of what I see reading here. Yeah. So which I, I, I clearly lead us down that path in the velocity of information to the point where if I would have become any more explicit, I'm not sure the book would have been published through a traditional publisher. Um, but in the last few chapters, like it really gets implanted in into your the forefront of your mind. And, and it kind of ends... I think the last question in the book, the last statement is, are you essential? And part of are you essential is also going to tie back to the whole deep fake avatar and realism thing. So, which we'll get into here in just a second, which I've said, but not too worried about getting deep fake. No one can fake. <laughs> oh my goodness, bacon. It's only what? It's like 4.30 in the afternoon where you're at. 
Jim McIntosh admitted this fact, delivered deep presentation. Yeah. So, so I think the point, if I if I do write about this, is going to be where air, people where people aren't looking. For example, like you know, fakes with school age kids um, and or schools as institutions, institutions of government, things like that, or local level. Um, not even at national level stuff, but even at local level, um, what is what does that mean? So, I could I could probably rough something out that would be pretty coherent on this. I think it would go back to the member check network I wrote about in the velocity of information, um, but even that will start to have cracks once deep fakes get to be better and faster. Uh, but I still think the member check network is a good defense against that. Um, Martin DeBacon, you'd be easy to deepfake. So I probably would. Um, please read. I will. I'll make a note of that, the NVIDIA presentation. So that would be something I would actually uh, write about. Um, do you know how many dates I went on that were deepfakes? All of them. Martin. Oh, my goodness, Martin. So, all right. For $50, you can be trolled by John Trump. So <laughs> that is hilarious. I think John would do that less for me, but. Oh my goodness, our good friend John Trump, or, or John Crump, not John Trump. Um, so I'm just trying to, to move ahead here. So, um, okay, I think we're good. So let me let me go to my show notes. This is SAS. I was so essentially cut my pay 30%. I wanted a pink slip and said, yikes, sorry about that, buddy. Um, so, Bacon saying, did that lifelock guy wind up getting his wind up getting his identity? I think he did. Like, didn't he put his like social security number like right on the commercials and on his vehicle stuff like that? So, but I I think I I would predict right. There's going to be this 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 new industry which will develop of um, kind of a lifelock type industry. I think in the next year we'll see commercials for it. Your insurance carriers will offer that to you. Employers will have subscriptions to it because they'll be like, you know, what are we going to do if our employees continually get tagged? And, and who knows who's going to be the person who's going to choose to tag them? Um, might be somebody they don't even know. But, uh, yeah. So let me go through here on my show notes and let me bring them up as I read them. So, all right. In... Uh, make them a little bit bigger. Whoa. All right. Here we go. In uh, 2019, U.S. lawmakers held their first hearing devoted primarily to the threat of artificially generated imagery. Then in 2009, October 2019, California banned political deepfakes during election season, but such actions have raised questions. It's like First Amendment, right? Does it, what if it's a parody, right? You know, all of those things. How do you draw a line? What might be consequences looming at the intersection of defakes and public policy? So what are defakes? Per Tim Biggs and Robert Moran of Explainer, defakes are the most prominent form of what's being called synthetic media images, sound and video that appear to have been created through traditional means, but have, but that have in fact been constructed by complex software. Deep fakes are in their most common form videos where one person's face has been convincingly replaced by a computer generated face, which often resembles a second person. Deep fakes, which come, uh, came to prominence in 2019, 
can be a single person or people. So a couple points here. Um, now we're really talking about digital deep fakes. I mean, you could do deep fakes before with pictures, still pictures. If you had a lot of resources, a lot of time, probably with, with video, probably wasn't practical. Audio would be a little bit easier. Now we're talking about digital deep fakes. And 2017 appears to be the point in time when it just became more feasible to do this. The computer processing got better at this. So in 2017, you could start to produce, if it wasn't like a whole, you know, government team and all of that, you know, just like a, a single person, whatever, could start to produce deep fakes, um, digital deep fakes that seemed realistic, right? Especially if you didn't, you know, if it's like not great lighting or, you know, whatever, and it's not shown for a long amount of time, um, things that would make it easier to pass it off. So risk of digital deepfakes. Um, digital deepfakes could rapidly erode trust in people's main source for information, which is the internet. Unfortunately, that is true that most people go right to the internet for their information. Deepfakes will damage reputations and careers and cause people to be skittish and hesitant to trust most media sources. So skittish, uh, meaning they're not going to vest whether this is authentic or not, and hesitant, meaning I'm not sure. Like maybe I'm going to... I'm going to have to pause and wait till some other sources or I can find sources to corroborate this, which isn't bad, but in life threatening situations, like the dam is just like failed, right? You have to get out of here. Like you, you won't have time for that. And will people really go through that or will they outsource it? Like, will they, they have a subscription and this, this source will say like, we will, we'll verify things through three sources before we get it to you. So what does that look like? Um, so anyway, um, deep fakes could feel civil unrest and toss dust in the eyes of stressed citizens anticipating negative news um, as they plot high stakes steps uh, in order to navigate war-torn landscapes. So think about right now, Ukraine, Russia, right? What is coming out on video? Some of the video that's come out is from video games. And it's and and some of the video is not even from those areas, right? But uh, people are... If you see that video, it's it's going to have a very visceral reaction with you. Um, and, you know, it, it can, these are the type of things that can make, uh, you know, can sway Congress. If you go back and look at something called the, the Casper Weinberger Doctrine, as with the Reagan back in the 80s, Casper Weinberger, CNN came online in 1980, wrote about this in School of Airs. And CNN started to show conflicts all over the world, but sometimes they would just show a conflict that was happening in a country, but it might only be like two city blocks, right? But people in the U.S. would watch this, be like, oh my God, like we have to send our forces over, we have to do something. And suddenly there was this pressure on Congress, right, to do something about these things in Congress. You know, like the, the military knew what was happening. They were apprised of it, but they were getting pressure from Congress to go in. So the Weinberger doctrine was supposed to prevent the um, allocation of military resources toward these types of, of things, like basically from political or from public opinion that was driven by the media. Um, and it's kind of failing right now. So yeah, depending upon, and if you watch Council of Future Conflict on YouTube, which I strongly recommend with Joe Dolio, for example, Conflict of uh, Future Conflict or, or council. Here we go. 
Maybe Bacon can find the link there. Council of Future Conflict. Um, and it's from um, it's from writers fix problems. But every day, largely uh, every day, they'll, they do an exhaustive show on Ukraine, Russia, what they are authentically um, learning from intelligence in that area. Some of the folks are like very close to the area that are forming that show. So, um, but right. So let's keep going. Um, furthermore, anyone can be the target of this technology. Uh, we have to play defense and offense. How do you prove your innocence against a convincing deep fake that portrays you as a fraud or of association with their ilk? So yikes, right? Like we're, none of us are probably thinking about this right now, but it could happen to any of us for almost, you know, any, any reason. Right. Um, I remember it was like 15 years ago. There was a house maybe a block away from us and they had been swatted kind of like a Tim pool thing, you know, swatted and somebody from a different state called in and said, there was something going on. And I think the person there was like doing was video game, live video game. I don't know the whole story, but, um, and the whole, the whole block got shut down, like, you know, all these police cars and all this stuff and whatever. And it, it turned out to be nothing. But, um, but again, I, you know, this, what amazes me and kind of worries me at the same time is how close we are to this being super prevalent, right? And I would say we're one year away from this being super prevalent. So that is what that is what absolutely is terrifying right now. So even I mean, I think I could find the right people. I think I could write the play. I think I could write what policies might look like. I think I could do all of that, which would be informative. But I don't necessarily know that I would have a um, you know like a, a way to defeat this. I'd have to really sit down and look at the works that I've done and everything else to try to come together. And, with this, but let's go back here. So let me do, let me read this. Um, so, okay. The PAC stadium, this is, this is a quote from the philosophy of information, right? So this earth, it's a section from there, this book. So the PAC stadium, or is it? Imagine watching a professional baseball game on TV and texting your attending in-person friend. Stadium is packed. Hope the concession lines aren't a mile long. Seconds later, they respond with a wide-angle selfie from a bleacher seat. What are you talking about? This place is practically empty. So you get this selfie from a person who's at this baseball game, and it's like, you know, there's maybe like 10,000 people there. Stadium sees 50,000. But what is shown on TV, it looks like the stadium's packed. It looks like it's full. So, um, so you're like, whoa. So let me read then the next part of this. On July 23rd, 2020, Fox Sports, again, this is in the book, The Velocity of Information, which is the pin tweet. Every library should have this. On July 23rd, 2020, Fox Sports posted a 37-second video to its Twitter account demonstrating how it could place thousands of virtual lifelike fans in the stands of major league stadiums. Fox Sports producers will be able to control things like how the virtual crowds are for a given game. What weather... Um, 
what weather fans are dressed for. So, you know, if they've got like coats on, if it's cold or something like that, or if it's, you know, sunny and they've got like a visor and what percentage of the crowd will be home versus away. The crowds appeared strikingly authentic and would be dis- indiscernible from real crowds to most TV viewers. That snippet was both incredible and chilling at the same time. It's from the book. So yes, um, Fox did have that uh, video clip. Um, so again, a 37 second video clip, which they showed a few times. Um, and I do have the link you know, out to it. I, I can't find it right now, but um, so imagine though, you're at a the major league baseball couldn't have fans in the stands because of the pandemic and you know, people can't attend games. So what they did is they, uh, Fox Sports says, we'll just digitally put fans in the stands. And they did that. So they would put a capacity of, you know, 80, 85% in the stands. And if it's a home game, most of the people would have a parallel that would look similar to home stuff. And they pointed this and they would change it. Like in the moment as they're going through this video, like, you'll look now it's all Brewers fans. That's all Cubs fans and things like that. Um, the thing was like, if you are just watching the game, right. Um, and you weren't scrutinizing it, it, it seemed like it was a typical baseball game with 30, 40,000 people in attendance when the reality is there were 50 people there. Um, so now when you go back, right, if you go back and look at these videos of these games, um, unless you explicitly see these things, and there, there wasn't anything noted, like a little underneath, like this is a artificially generated audience, right? They might have mentioned it a couple times during the during the game. But if you looked at it, um, you'd be like, whoa. Now, I mean, like the, not the NFL, but um, the NBA did like cardboard cutouts and stuff like that. But like um, what Fox Major League Baseball did is they digitally put fans in the stands. And so the questions come up, right? Is this, this is, this is hacked reality. Um, What if, crowd density was used or what if this was used to distort crowd density of people waiting outside of a grocery store, right? Grocery stores for food to shortages, right? What if this was uh, political rallies or protests? Um, All of these things could be manipulated with the same type of software. And you get that out there. um, You know, what if it was people made to look like they were standing in front of banks, right? You know, like there was a bank run or something like that. It's kind of endless um, where you could could go with this type of technology. But I remember when I watched um, that for the first time that, and again, it was on Twitter. I think I saved it, right? And uh, But I remember like thinking, this is very odd, right? This is, I guess, a good side of avatar realism. But the point, you know, when I'm observing it, unless you're really, really tuning into it, you're going to just, you know, it has the appropriate noise in the back. The images are not uh, sharpened to the point, you know, where you can get into the distinct detail. You're not going to focus on that. You're going to f- focus on the players, right? So you, the 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 background, the audience, noise, all that will just kind of blend in. Um, this is pretty terrifying because I'm like, you could, I mean, look, there are many ways this could be manipulated. What if somebody is periscoping, right, or or live streaming or whatever, and they have an app 
that can in real time do this? Or what if they can do this and then, you know, in three minutes, alter it with whatever to change the density of a crowd or the behavior of a crowd, right? You could overlay a crowd into these areas. So, um, I, again, I wrote about it in Velocity of Information, and the example I used was, you know, somebody at a baseball game, somebody watching a baseball game in 2020 from at home, Major League Baseball game, and they know that one of their friends has is there, right? But, you know, there's only a couple thousand people who are allowed in, social distancing and all that stuff. And this person is watching on TV, and they're like, oh, my God, I guess it's just a, it's a packed game and whatever. So texting their friend and say, yeah. I imagine, you know, it kind of sucks because like it's a, it's a long line to get a kielbasa and nachos. And the friend, you know, emails back in this wide angle photo and saying, what are you talking about? You know, like there's 10,000 people. There's, it's a breeze. There's nobody, nobody here. So that is crazy, right? Um, and that's where we're at. And this only gets better by the day and gets cheaper and gets as an app and downloadable and things like this, there's no longer a team that needs to have this happen. It's a person who can do this. Remember what happens? People will forward news and information versus checking it. That is the tendency. We know that it's just human nature. That was back in 38 with the War of the Worlds. Our Martians, like, you know, are landing, invading Earth. Um, people do that. We know that 30% of people, if you ask them any question, go to Google and, and search it. What is the you know capital of Alaska or something like that? Like they won't even try to re remember. They'll just like, what is, you know, Google? So um, the whole thing is past the headline, right? Or past the news. So if you can get a majority of people convinced by this, right? Enough context around it, they'll go with it. And and they'll dig down their positions and what, they, what they've what they been trained is, what they've been conditioned, what they see is real, right? What they see from the news, right? And for a long time, there was more accuracy in that, you know, in, in ABC and your, your major news networks. But um, so now you're in a position of having to kind of negotiate with people that, no, this isn't authentic, right? Like, but then you're in a position where you have to get additional resources to try to, to give different positions on things. And yet that person will go online and they'll find 10 other people who just recycle the same clip of video that they received. So they'll be, it's this thing, negative vicarious rehearsal. They get, they get fed the same information over and over by other people. Like Joe Dolio says this perfectly. He said, just because 10 people shared things with you doesn't mean it's been validated by 10 people. It just could, it's just been shared with you by 10 people. There's a big difference in that. Um, you know, so this is, is pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy stuff. So I think this, you know, so the point, you know, the points here are deep fakes and false takes. Deep fakes are getting better. Digital deep fakes and avatar realism um, they've been around in a pretty highly effective way since 2016. Um, they're cheaper. Anybody can do them. If you watch Taren, any of Taryn's pop shows, you know, you get to the, when he takes his breaks, <laughs> you know, the, the deep fake parts of that. And you can, you know, it's, it's comedy, right? That's clearly comedy right there, but you can also kind of look at that and say, Oh my God, like this is all done with a phone app and the false takes, right? If you get something coming out of, of, um, 
Russia or Ukraine or something that appears like it's official, um, what are you going to do? I mean, imagine how, just think about how crazy people got with the, uh, the inbound missile, you know, threat with, uh, Hawaii three years ago, you know, which was not, that wasn't a deep fake, right? It was a miscommunication, but if, I mean, you could have a rapid escalation now there, of course, like you're right, there are measures that validate information but before any actions and stuff are, are taken, but, um, it becomes this liar's dividend if this information repeatedly gets circulated out there. And then it probably erodes more into Congress, right? Because, again, Casper Weinberger in the 1980s was starting to see this with CNN of saying, we have to make sure that Congress does not decide to deploy troops into humanitarian efforts or to war because of what the media has portrayed and basically convinced Congress or some members of Congress to push for or their constituents, right? So that is where, like, what do we, what do we authentically know out of Ukraine and, and Russia, the conflict right now? I would say the most authentic information I've seen comes from Council of Future Conflict, um, Again, Bacon can share that clip, but um, I think it is AtlanticCouncil.org. No, I don't think so. No, that's not it. So, Bacon, if you go to um, the the Writers Fix Problems, um, or if you go on my Twitter, I posted it yesterday. Like, uh, um, so let me let me find this here. So. So you guys have it right. These guys do a great job with this. So, all right. Um, scroll down a second. Da -da, da -da, da -da, da -da, and the Eep from Eepaniwa. Okay, here we go. Um, here it is. Subscribe to this channel. Watch these guys. Um, they know what they're doing. Um, so there, the link should have come through. So hopefully it did right there. So, yeah. It's a council on future conflict. They've been with this from day one. I was a guest on one show. And in that show, I was talking about uh, propaganda as I studied it and wrote about it. Um, in my book, The Velocity of Information, kind of propaganda in World War I, World War II, and kind of some weird things from contemporary propaganda that either we don't, uh, we don't see right now. We see some weird disjointed messaging or propaganda attempts by the kind of the U.S. But, uh, but yeah, so let's, so deep fakes, it's a big thing. Be thinking about it and, and you'll go back to this video, right? You'll go back to this video and say, I remember like doc was talking about this and like my insurance carrier, like there's commercials now, you know, by whatever. And, uh, I think there's also this thing of, um, like shark tank or whatever. You, you will see somebody come out with some program, some software, some subscription service, where if you've been the recipient of, uh, of an alleged deep fake 
Um, so I think, I think we are very close. Um, when I say, I think the next year we'll see this come out. So let's go over here to the chat. Eep from Ipaniwa. First of all, let's go up here. Heath. Oh, what? Heath. So Heath, let's go all the way. Heath, uh, the LifeLock guy didn't really have his ID stolen. Someone opened up an account whose name didn't run CBR to see the consumer statement, not to open an account until it's cleared. Gotcha. So we haven't heard much from the LifeLock guy in a while. It's our good friend Heath. Andrew, our friend Joe Dolio posted a photo on Twitter showing a purchase limits on food. Oh, I wrote, it looks like a prank. He said the photo is 100% real. I agree the photo. Sign a real, but it could be a prank. Could be. I've been receiving um, photos that are taken in Germany by Phil Heinrich, who lives in Germany, authentically takes these photos and then sends them to me. Um, those are all happening in Germany. In addition, in Germany, since uh, two weeks ago, if you buy certain things, in grocery stores, these are all photos that Phil has taken. Um, you'll be charged if it's like sugar and flour. There's a surcharge of maybe two or three dollars, and that goes toward the Ukraine relief effort. So you cannot buy those items unless you also pay the surcharge. Um, I would say any. I would say though, Andrew Joe is does his due diligence. Um, so if he's saying that this photo is 100% real. Uh, he has the metadata, you know, to put that that up. You're you're right. I mean, anything could be pranked, so it could be real that he's taking this photo or whatever. But the thing could be staged. Um, but yeah, it's also an industry Joe works in. So, but pretty scary, right? This is why you need a member check network. Exactly here, why I wrote about in velocity of information. So if you have Joe now. Andrew, let's say you're talking to your friend in Pittsburgh and your friend in the Bronx, your friend in Houston, you're saying, hey, are you seeing these things? And they're like, no. Or like if one other person says yes, you're like, whoa. You know, like, I guess it's not just localized. It could be something that's happening across the country. So um, anyone can put up a fix on a shelf, people. Yeah, that's a good point, Andrew. That's a, And that's a great, that's a, also a good point on deep fakes, right? You could quote unquote, weaponize a deep fake avatar. If you didn't go too over the line, I, you know, I wrote about conjunction fallacy and velocity of information. Like if you get over, you know, too many conditions and your demands and stuff like that with people, they'll start to realize it's not authentic and they'll, they won't follow it. But um, you're right. People will obey most things. We know that from the Milgram experiment, which I would write about in the next book. Um, I think there's an I think there's an opportunity to write about kind of compliance behavior and also how that might intersect intersect with deep fakes and reality. I think that would be interesting in a book. I'd have to think that out a little bit. Um, the Milgram experiment, which I believe I did a show on at one point, but that was back in the '60s, um, and so it was done at a university. A professor brought in, you know, paid people like three dollars, right, <laughs> come in and participate for an hour. And you'd sit down um, and you'd have a, a dial in front of you and it would be zero to 10. And up as you got toward like seven, eight, nine, 10, it'd get to be like red on the dial. And there would be somebody in a room um, next to you. You, didn't, you couldn't see them, but you could hear them, right? Um, and the experiment was, this, this is the spoof off of the start of Ghostbusters where, you know, it's like, what is that? A couple of wavy lines. Zzz, no, I'm sorry, but... Um, 
So, so you came into this experiment and the whole thing was like, how would people follow directives when they knew it was bringing harm to somebody else? Would they stop? So Milgram was an old white lab coat. This is a university, right? So when people agree to participate in research and they're getting paid, they're thinking, well, this is this institution, right? That's trustworthy. And also that, you know, this guy's in a lab coat. He must know what he's doing. Like, I'm not going to kill anybody here by pressing this button. Um, so, or turn his dial up. So what Milgram would do is, is there was an actor in an adjacent room and the actor could see what was happening on the dial, right? So if the dial got turned to like seven and the button was pressed, the actor would say, oh, like this is hurting me or like I have a heart condition and you know, this could kill me. You have to stop. Um, so, you know, nothing was authentically happening other than the, you know, the lights up and the person, the actor knows what's happening. Um, but then the person administering this has no idea, right? They are only told by Milgram to do this. Now they can get up at any time and walk away. Um, but so the, the thought from Milgram coming into this was most people would go up to a certain level, like maybe a five. And then they'd be like, forget it. I'm not I'm three bucks here. I'm not going to electrocute somebody. But the reality was most people just kept going. So if, if he said, now you go, I have to go up from eight to nine. And even though the person in the other room is yelling and screaming and stuff like that, every time they press a button, the, uh, they would stay there. They would continue. So that was one of the things Milgram was surprised by. And, um, you could never do that today, right? <laughs> in the IRB Institutional Review Board, you could never do this type of experience. There were people that came back after they learned that this was just uh, research. It wasn't authentic, right? This person was being shocked. And there were people years after that came back and wanted compensation and, and said, like, they lived with that for, you know, decades. Like, they thought they authentically had harmed somebody and this really disturbed them. Because when they left, like, Milgram's team never said, oh, by the way, like, this is just an experiment. Which, like, you could have said at that point because, like, you've already gathered your data. They just let the person exit. So, really weird stuff. But, but what it proved, and you know, you can go back to World War II and just following orders. But what, what it again, it was proving this part of if you have some structures that look official in place, and you know, there are a lot of videos. Oh, well, so one, I was listening to um, John Ronson, a John Ronson um, interview. And he was an author before of uh, So You've Been Shamed, but John Ronson has a radio show and and he was interviewing um, somebody who uh, pro professionally for like $15,000 will make you disappear, right? So, you know, you're just, you know, you want to relocate to another country or whatever. You want to start out under a different name or whatever, like you pay this person and that's what they do. Like, and they go through this whole process. Um but he was in this discussion, this person was also saying, like, if you're collecting intelligence on, you know, someone or somewhere, like if you're a cleaning person, if you have like a mop or, you know, regular, you know, cleaning materials or something associated with that or dress the part, society is basically conditioned to kind of just overlook these people, not necessarily demean these people, but they're they're kind of functioning in the background, right? They're doing what they need to do. So he was saying that is a great way for people also to just kind of blend away, right? Like if they're, or if they're kind of like starting in somewhere else, you know, maybe 
the first couple months, like that is a persona they're going to have and then gradually move into something else and people never detect it. But um, I thought that was, that was absolutely, you know, absolutely fascinating um, of how kind of how to blend out, especially today when you're so heavily tracked and then kind of blend back into society, maybe somewhere else. Um, but, but yeah, so, so Andrew was saying anybody could put a fake sign. Absolutely true. And then a part of this is um, there's high compliance, right? Uh, people just, if they see something and that's where, right. If you see somebody who is, um, you know, with, with cleaning stuff, you're just assuming they're there to clean. There's a video on YouTube where I use this in one of my administrative classes um, for school leaders. And it's a guy who, who went around with a ladder and he just was trying to see how many places he could get access to without really being questioned. Right. So, you know, just typical, normal, whatever he's wearing. And he went to like a movie theater and he has this ladder and he goes to the front desk and or the area. And he's like, I'm, I'm here to fix, you know, whatever the lights. And then someone kind of qu questioned, they're like, well, what theater? And he's like, I don't know, theater four. They're like, well, we don't have four. Like we have names of our theaters. And he's like, it's, you know, it's uh, just one of the lights up in, and then someone else jumps in. They're like, oh, it's probably, you know, the um, Renaissance theater, right? Like the, or the Paragon or whatever, you know, it's because up above the door, like that light hasn't been working. He's like, yep, that's what it is. And then they just let him in. Or the guy's gotten like onto a boat, subway, stuff like that. I mean, all these things into businesses. Um, I wrote about in, in School of Airs how there was a teenager who worked his way up to the new um, World Trade Center like, I don't know, 2016. And, and, and he just like scoped it out for a couple days, didn't damage anything, came up at night, worked his way through a fence again, without damaging anything, worked his way onto the property up through the building, got all the way to the top. So, and these things happen all the time. If you just seem like you should be there. I wrote also in school of errors, how there was a player showed up at a Pittsburgh Steelers practice field. And the guy bought all the authentic apparel, right? You can get all of it from the pro shops now or the team merchandise shops. And he was a you know, physically fit guy. And as the team is like coming out of a, I don't know, facility and running over to a field, he just like runs in from the crowd and joins them. So he's over there like doing some drills and stuff with them for a few minutes before someone figures out, hey, this guy shouldn't be here, right? But I mean, he had access. So, you know, that's, that's the thing too is, um, and how does that portray into like, we are already kind of um, running downhill with these deep fakes. Like you're going to want to believe a deep fake more than you're going to want to challenge a deep fake or something's not real. You're going to want to believe something is authentic. So um, so let's do this. I'm moving down here. Doc likes Kilbasa. Confirmed. So uh, I could go for a uh, Johnsonville, a uh, couple well-grilled Johnsonville brats and some sauerkraut and, um, yeah, like some grilled onions. Oh, God, would that be great? We grew up, you know, that would be like campfire food. So I <laughs> so miss that. There's a brat hut outside of our festival foods, and they do that in summer a couple times. So. Uh, won't be long. Um, 
Bacon saying, I remember that bungled missile warning in Hawaii. Got my hopes up for nothing. So the thing with Hawaii is like it happened again in Florida, which people don't remember, like maybe a couple months later. So um, the Hawaii missile crisis would make it into my next book. Like I would point that out of saying, you know, how it was. The responses there were really weird, too. And then kind of like that never really got resolved. I was a guest on Jim Mallard's show, The Mallard Report, after that. And we were talking about, you know, maybe like a three, four weeks because the story on that changed quickly. It was one person. They were running a simulation. Somehow it got put out to the to the public. And then, okay. But then quickly that person had been reassigned to the facility there, but then that person had been terminated and then reporters went to try to find where that person lived and they couldn't find it. Like, I think they went to somebody's house and they're like, that person doesn't live here. They never lived here. Pretty soon it was like this person, like you couldn't even find. So the question is like, what really happened? Um, but yeah, I mean, so think of the Hawaii missile thing too, of, you know, the whole thing with cyber hacking or like, do you really have to cyber hack? a system like that, or do you just have to deep fake it or avatar realism enough where you could splice in your video feed or get your video out to enough people? That's the thing, right? I don't, I think there is a point now where you don't have to hack these systems. You just have to hack the communication systems well enough to create fear unrest. Um, if you do it enough, you're going to create this, Liar's Dividend, which is a chapter like in this book, right, of saying, are people, I mean, wouldn't, if these little, you know, buzzes and news, you know, hey, you know, take shelter or whatever, are people going to believe that um, if you've cried wolf too many times, right, because these systems have been compromised? It'll be like, oh, it's another time they got hacked. Check out Imposter Politicians. This is Heath, who who's really in charge on Odyssey. Um, you won't look at anything on TV the same again. So it's great. So exactly what Heath is saying. I will. I'll do that. So, right, you could green screen, you know, pretty much anything, right? Um, so, yeah. So the deep questions have to come in of how do you verify um, information? Because it used to be this proximity becomes an issue. Right? How would you uh, verify what was happening, maybe in a Pittsburgh or New York or Ukraine or Russia? But now, how do you verify what's happening in your own town? Right? How do you verify that? Or like when holographic deepfakes could be deployed, um, which sound really spacey and crazy and stuff, but it's not impossible to do that at all, at all. Um, that takes more technology, more equipment and things like that. But that's very plausible. But you could even, again, you could have things as Joe Dolio, I interviewed, you know, Joe in the velocity of information. And you know, he was saying, you know, people were reporting to him in Detroit that there were roadblocks put up by military. They were checking to see if you had essential papers and stuff, right? Remember that during the pandemic to go to your jobs and things like that. And and that was not authentic, although people were in this reporting network were reporting that that was happening. And Joe went there himself, didn't find any of it. And then people would say, yeah, I heard it from somebody, right? I didn't see it myself. But, you know, what if there was a video that somebody created 
where there was something like that and quickly got that out there. Then it could be like, oh, it was, it was here. I have video evidence of it here, of it being here 12 minutes ago. It's not here now, right? Because it's gone. But um, so it gets me really crazy of how do you live in a world and, and validate and verify, which there will be ways to do this. It's going to be really sitting down and, and thinking about these and also giving people a heads up for not only what is um, approaching, but what is happening right now, what's been happening and what, what the capabilities are. Uh, Bacon, this is from Andrew. Some universities in France Photoshop, some white students look more diverse. Cringe, so I'm sure a lot of videos have been and images have been yeah, Photoshop for different representation uh, purposes, sure. Or even, um, yeah. Um, former YouTuber David M. Arini, I remember David Arini, had to put out an emergency YouTube video because a satire Twitter account tweeted he was responsible. Oh, my God, that's horrible. A news, oh, my God. I didn't know that. So this would be a point, Andrew, like certainly, certainly to look into, right? Um, because what, right, kind of like John Ronson, so you've been shamed, but what if this did happen and it was targeted at, you know, as someone is being responsible, how do you get on, get ahead of this? How do you respond to this? Is there an emergency public relations team that you have access to? Again, are these insurance policy type things that give you access to these very rapid response things? And, you know, imagine like, so you're saying this happened, you know, with, with uh, David Arini, you know, what if people immediately dox? They're like, here's where he's at. And there's vigilante justice. You know, people are going to his house or trying to find him or here's what the guy looks like. I mean, it's a matter of how do you get ahead of that before there's serious or permanent harm? Um, it's pretty terrifying. And even with this, you know, like, he could have his, you know, bank accounts frozen, you know, could be separated from employment. That's, but I mean, in the immediate term, he's coming home. He doesn't know this is happening. And there are 20 people, you know, at his address. It could be fatal. Um, wow. They, whomever they are, lie often. Jim McIntosh, yeah. Another reason to, to learn your back roads, avoid it. Many a checkpoint in LA that way. It's a break-in. For example, road close signs, road not closed, vice versa. Yes. <clears throat> right. Absolutely. Um, maps are important. Everyone should have one for a local area. So, right. And how many people do that, right? I mean, how many people? Again, we we need to remember, and this was important in the velocity of information, is once 70, like 70% 70 of people believe something or are willing to go with it, it happens. And, and so you're not, you're not dealing with having to convince 90% of people or whatever. You just have to get kind of about 50% of people on board and then another 20 people like willing to go with it, which was very prevalent. Um, an example, examples of this would have been, uh, I wrote about it in the velocity of information, the conjunction fallacy, uh, two statements. So let's say one is the governor, the governor of your state has said, everybody has to stay at home, right? This is March, 2020. So I do have a screenshot of a phone image that came out from one of the states said that it's in the book. Now, what if there's another statement of saying you have to stay home plus like all state highways are, are shut down now, like all, 
So, you know, you can't cross in other states. So that's a conjunction fallacy, meaning you're adding more information, but it's more likely that you have to stay at home than you have to stay at home and the highways will be closed because then two things would have to be right versus one thing. But panic people tend to want more information. They want to, the more details you can add to a point, help you out. And that's one thing too, like if you study the kind of how to convince people in propaganda, almost like, I guess, lying, right? If you have one story and you stick with that one point, you're usually going to be in pretty good shape with propaganda. It's when you start to add all these other things and it's like, oh, I don't, now like the roads are closed, who's going to enforce that or whatever the other things, like if you just say like you have to stay at home, like that's more believable. Um, but that is that is uh, crazy with Dave Davis uh, Arini. So holy smokes! Um, just email local library. Toy Town. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So I've found this. This is a little hack that um, does seem to work really well. Is if you live in an area like it wouldn't work for me. Like so, if I if I were to email some town in like Peoria, Illinois, and I'm like, hey, buy this book. Um, they usually would have something of saying, are you like a local resident? Like, where do you live or something like that or whatever. So, um, but if you live there, right. If this is your library that you would go to and you say, I want you to buy this book, a lot of libraries. And this has been incredibly successful with school of errors, like people who follow, you know, the show or people who've read school of errors and where they've ordered it. And then, you know, will email me or whatever it, appreciate. I will email back and say, awesome. And please contact your local library and say, you found value in this book. You think it would benefit others in the community. Most of the time, library wants recommendations from their patrons, like people that go to library, people who live there and they'll take it and they'll go with it. They'll be like, yeah, boom. I mean, their scholarly books are from a scholarly publisher, uh, well-cited, things like that. Um, they they'll go with it. So that is a great way to help me out is with your local libraries to suggest my books. And again, um, I would say anecdotally more than 80% of the time libraries go with that. If they're local recommendations, uh, might even be higher than that. It's really effective again, because they want to, they're waiting for this, right? They're like, well, what, you know, what should we buy? And especially if someone who lives in the community and whatever is saying, here's what I think we, we should have in the library. <laughs> They'll typically go with it. So that helps me out. I appreciate it. Um, interesting. Davis still has live streams. I used to watch because of how bad they were. People eating Doritos, chewing sounds, David yelling to me. It makes yikes. So I miss, uh, I haven't had Doritos for a while. I, um, I record Wednesdays and Fridays in the morning for my book. And actually it's Friday. Like we'll be done. Be, be the end. Um, I eat potato chips, uh, regular greasy Lay's <laughs> potato chips Tuesday and Thursday nights to help my vocal cords. It works. And I drink a, a gallon of either tea or water. So two gallons on Tuesdays and Thursdays to really be hydrated, which makes a big difference too. So um, paid by our tax dollars. Yeah, no kidding here. Um, I'm going to call mine to get them to order. Well, I appreciate that, Heath. So... Yeah. And why not? Right. I mean, these are great books. Um, and it's, 
it and it starts to become social proof with libraries also. That's what happened with uh, school bears. Once a couple libraries got it, then libraries would be like, oh, like these libraries have school bears. Like you know, we should get it too. And I think it's a a a very valuable book to have in library collections. And that's social proof. More libraries get it. More libraries then will purchase it. I think the same is is there for velocity of information uh, at all different levels. If as you interact with this book, I think the book is phenomenal. Um, but if if you have anybody, you know, if you're a parent or you have like you know, young people, uh, you know, relatives and stuff like that, of how to help them identify inaccurate information, how to help ver- how to verify information and, and move through time during these uh, chaotic times, right? Because right now we're just in, we just gave up a pandemic and, and protest for inflation um, on one hand and, uh, you know, war conflict in Russia on, on the other hand. So you're moving, you know, when young young people languish, like they, they just, they don't move forward unless you actually put some of these structures in place to kind of move forward. Not only young, like old older people too, so it's kind of like, you know, a middle-aged person, you, you kind of have to work both ends of helping people move through through time. But philosophy of information is phenomenal. I'm so happy with how that, that book turned out. I'd say like there's 3,000 hours of time invested in that. Completely accurate with that. I started in February of 2020. And when I, when I started it and started to do the outlines and stuff, I knew that you know, obviously the pandemic and stuff wasn't going to go away anytime soon. <laughs> so I thought it would take, you know, a year, right? Or, or more, which it did. And that if I could get in at the start and start to interview and start to write about it, like it would be authentic. It'd be in vivo, in the moment. And I remember on September 11th, reading a documentary of someone was studying celestial bodies or something. And they they knew that when the airplanes were grounded after September 11th for like what, five days, they had a window of time to gather some of this information because you wouldn't have planes on the sky and all this stuff. And, um, and they did it like they, they took that opportunity. And that was the same thing of like to write this book in vivo in real time, um, is so much better than like writing it now, trying to remember what happened back in March of 2020 versus like writing in March of 2020, what was happening and then so on. So um, fascinating, fascinating book. And and uh, I would say, I don't know if it's a scary thing, but it, when now I present on the book, you know, author events, things like that, people will will not remember big events you know, that happened that are in the book that are, I have pictures of, you know, like the quarter shortage, right. Or the coin shortage. Like people be like, I don't really remember that. I'm like, yeah, it was all over. Like, here's a picture of a sign of a by cash register that I took. And then, you know, other people in my network, Joe Dolio, other people were telling me the same thing all over the country, you know, could only use credit in that. And then people be like, Oh yeah, now I remember, but um, you start to, uh, and I, again, there's so many pictures and, and stuff like that that really make the book like this awesome historical document, which you cannot alter, which has 471 endnotes. So it's like strongly cited. And and I found the book to be more of a historical 
um, asset than, than I thought it would be this early on. Like I thought for sure, everybody reading the book, when you got to page four and we get into non-essential versus essential, they'd be like, okay, I went through that. Here's how I felt. And it's like, whoa, that did happen. Yeah. Now I remember. And I guess I was essential. And, and you have to kind of lead people through that of saying, yeah, but you also have to realize like everybody you invited to your Christmas gathering, you were making a decision versus on essential versus non-essential, which actually went toward whether people had the poke or not, or, but then like, if you're making a decision for your job um, or your kids are going to college or whatever, or you're going to get training, like you will forever make a decision and it will be influenced by essential, non-essential. You want to be able to, to have remote work because what if this happens again? Who would have thought in March of 2020, you'd get up in a morning and you'd be like, oh, I'm non-essential and I just have, to, or I'm essential. Like who would have thought that that happened? You had no input to it. You can, it's arbitrary. You had no challenge to it. It just happened. So I, I, you know, I, I lead people in this and I said, these divides are much deeper than you have any idea. Like these will impact generations, but, um, and, and also there was kind of this weird for a, a moment, like if you were deemed non-essential or was almost this like honor to that in a way. And again, I wrote about it um, versus being essential, like essential got where the people in some instances that we offloaded our risk onto, oh, truck drivers, oh, like store workers, stuff like that. It, it is really damaging. And I think it shows how people blocked it out and just how people are ignoring going forward. Like, um, but it's all in the book right up front. And it's, I'm so glad I put that chapter in because I didn't, I was debating on that one for a while and also where to put it in the book. And I'm like, no, it has to be up front because everybody went through this. And what I expected was different though. I expected when people would read the book or I have like, you know, author events or like, you know, book reads, stuff like this, that would be this moment to get everybody kind of vested into the book and the story, right. Of You know, the book and, and it wasn't that easy because like people forget, I should say people forget. No one forgets that it happens. They purposely block it out. So I had to go, go and just uh, take some time and say, oh, like this is a weird phenomenon. And then people say, they'll say this. It seems like that was 20 years ago or, you know, they lose this track of times, so, which is very apparent in the book too, of saying you will lose track of time. You will misremember this. One, you'll think it'll be less significant than it was. And two, you'll think it happened a long time ago. And you'll also misremember things before the year 2020. I had that clearly on the timeline. And all of those things are at play. And I think, so So, I've also had people get this. I've had people who, um, I think the reality of the book has scared them. I've had a few people who have just said, I can't handle it. Uh, so I've just, I can't read any more of it. Not that it's bad writing. Like there's a, it's awesome. It's a well-written invigorating book. It's just that it forces their mind back to an area that they don't want to think about. And they, they just don't want to deal with it. So it is, it is weird in that way, right? That, um, I guess how people, um, just blocked out all of, all of these, these experiences, 
right? And didn't deal with them. And at some point, right, you'll deal with them or they'll, they'll erode, they'll eat away at you or, um, so it's interesting. I, I shared that observation with a, um, a clinical, uh, therapist who kind of centers on these, these areas right now. And I said, um, you know, I don't know what you're seeing in your practice, I, but I, and I'm not a therapist, uh, but I said, um, this is what I'm seeing when I talk with people, right? When I, we go through the book and stuff like that, it's just really weird misremembering and the selective editing that people have made. Um, and I said, I, if I were you, I'd read the book <laughs> and I would start to anticipate this, like with your clients coming in, or if you start to see this to like also maybe use the book to validate some of the people who are experiencing trouble, um, trying to, to deal with this stuff. Um, so, uh, there's a working title in everything for you. What's the working title, Jim? What's the working title? Put that down. I don't, what is the working title? So Jim, what's the working title? Um, Oh, is this it? I have heard your third book at the the long convia. Is the title like the long con via the memory hole? That would be an interesting um, title. I was thinking of something like um, rhetoric versus reality, but I don't know what that's almost... I don't know, like a title in, in some, I'd have to, it's when I did velocity of information, boom, right off the bat, we never changed it. Many people like came forward or like, that's an excellent title. Linda Stone, she's like spot on. Like School of Errors was a later development like that originally was Lessons of Lower Manhattan, but um, I have to, I have to hit the right tone. I have to hit the, um, it can't be a conspiracy theory, right? It, it can't go down. It has to be really objective and strongly cited. So, but there is something, this whole, there is a part of the book, as Jim said, there's a part of the book that would need to be about um, our memory. And I, I studied this a lot when I did expert witness work of how people misremember and how attorneys use that, right? Because attorneys will go through different phases, discovery, they'll get information, they'll initially do depositions, they'll interview people, and then they will interview people at a different time, right? And then they'll try to compare those two and say, well, you said at this time, whatever, but then, you know, time passes and people will never match those things perfectly. So, um, but I think that's, that's a point of how people, um, how people remember or misremember and we're also conditioned to not remember a large part of what we do like if you walk down a street like and you get to the end it's like well what did you pass how many houses or what was on the sidewalk or that you i mean if it's not really relevant you're not tuning into it now if you're a sniper right like I interviewed clay martin in the book um the velocity of information yeah it's very relevant um but so you know how does that work? And then at what there's a trade-off though. Like if you're hyper attending to everything, there's only so much with attention theory, which is Linda Stone, which I wrote about in the velocity of information. Attention 
this whole thing of multitasking and thinking of multi-attention, that's not accurate. Like you, you can multitask, sure, but your attention functions in a serial manner, meaning like you're attending right now to this like podcast or you're attending to typing something or you're, you're attending to something that requires cognitive. If you're stirring soup, like, you know, that's, and listening to this, that's multitasking. Um, but once you start to combine these things that require cognitive activity and processing, it's really serial. You're, you're focusing on one thing and focusing on another and then focusing on another. And you're doing that very quickly, but in a serial fashion. So you're not like hyper attending to like four things all at, at once. Um, so there, there is a part of that that uh, that needs to come into play in this book and maybe be built out of last of information. And that could be a whole strategy too with like deep fakes and things like that is it tries to split our attention um, and the fact that we can, we serially do attention, um, it tries to move us, right? And, and tr it tries to wear us down. The one person I interviewed who seemed to have this unfallible attention was Larry Lawton, America's Biggest Jewel Thief. So if you know Larry, you know, 1.5 million YouTube followers and, you know, big social media presence um, and, uh, you know, was America's Biggest Jewel Thief, uh, wrote um, Gangster Redemption, does a ton now for, um, you know, working with youth and uh, people kind of going down the wrong road before they, they get into the prison system. But so Larry emailed me a couple days ago and he said he wants to have me on a show because I wrote a chapter about Larry in my book. So I can't wait for that because uh, that'll be a lot of fun. And But Larry had prison attention. Prison attention was, you know, 24-7 pretty much. You had to be super attending. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, a person a day at the prisons where he was at, you know, be killed. And so like... Every single thing had this massive level of attention to it. You know, what was somebody wearing their shoes? Where were their feet pointed? I mean, all of this stuff, like every second. And then um, how that transferred to when he was out of prison, right? That and, and you you kind of hear this too with like uh, uh, Clay Martin and, you know, uh, military who might have been snipers and things like that is how do you dial down like this hyper attention? Because it is so consuming of your mental resources, right? There's interesting studies too. This might be like an interesting sidebar in the book, but like you know, if you go to Einstein and and uh, but kind of bring it forward, high level mental activity, cognitive activity requires a high level of glucose, right? Your your brain. So if you're doing like a CAT scan on it, whatever PET scan you would see that you're, you perform better if you periodically consume sugar, right? Not like necessarily like a Mountain Dew. I guess it could be accurate to some extent, but not necessarily caffeine, just sugar. So you might see these things of like, you know, Einstein eating candy or whatever, or, you know, uh, you know, scientists or whatever, or doctors like, you know, taking a break two hours into surgery to have a Three Musketeers bar, the reason they do that is to refill the glucose that is being burned up in the brain, the brain activity. So um, that's why all that is being done. So I think there's a 
there's a weird little, I don't know, it's a, it's not a chapter. There's like a, it's a sub part of a chapter of saying like, you know, the more you kind of understand how you have to combat this, how you have to mitigate this, there's even these little tricks. I don't know if they're tricks, but there's this awareness, right? Of like, you probably want to maintain a pretty healthy glucose level when you're analyzing this stuff in your system, right? And then, you know, you could cite out some of these things. Not to tell everybody, you know, go eat a bag of, you know, three musketeers every day, but um, but it's it's very very accurate that that is um, that's very genuine um, out there. So who would have thought, right? So this is Bacon saying, "Hell, we still have coin shortages." Even yeah. So and what's so from intelligence, like when I wrote about coin shortages in the book at the time that was happening, it was conveying to the members, we made a decision that we needed to bolster our credit lines and prepare if things started to go to credit card only. So like make sure that you had credit cards and write your credit card, um, you know, ceilings and stuff were ample because what if there was a shutdown? At that time, the thought was, between our group, right? As we start to see these signs, the the position would be we're shutting down currency exchange because virus could pass on dollars and quarters and dimes, stuff like that, which didn't, that didn't come out, but, you know, started to read the tea leaves and say, you've got to prepare. So, um, but yeah, Jim is saying the current conflict in Ukraine, uh, there's a working title and every, uh, everything for you. So uh, even my boomer mother, this is Andrew, knows the coin charge is BS. She saw everyone getting changed from the self-checkout machine, simply red pill like that um, last a lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, there, and so there's this, this part of thinking where, where are all the coins going? So like if commerce or when commerce was shut down in person commerce and spring of 2020, People weren't going to, st- I mean, there wasn't a high demand for coins, right? Not like you're getting all of your meals out of a vending machine. Um, you know, you're buying off of Amazon. You're doing, you know, credit card for ordering takeout, stuff like that. So it's like, it's, there. it was mismatched. Like what is happening? And of course, the, the argument would be these coins are staying at people's homes or not going into circulation. Maybe, but then the coins that were already out there that would be harvested from laundry mats and just other places, like, wouldn't those be there? Like the demand for coins wasn't as high. Like, so, you know, you just look at that. And it's just kind of a weird thing, but the, the part of the book is saying, you know, we weren't investigating to the bottom of this, trying to figure out why there's a coin shortage as much as saying, it seems like there's a coin shortage everywhere. Like all of us are reporting that we're seeing these signs. So how do we position ourselves to be in a, uh, to handle this, right? And what could, what do we think could happen next? Because again, more than one of us were experiencing this. Um, Jim McIntosh, that's a very good title. I like it. So Jim is saying, when I, I, I never find a coin on the ground, then I think there is a coin shortage when I never find <laughs> I had a stretch there. I was finding coins all over the place. Uh, I find pennies to quarters on the ground regularly. So, 
Um, people are such, uh, whoa, we all slay our inner. Well, yeah, John, yeah. Um, Bacon, the misremembering mis mis is a good title too. Yeah, there's, there's a lot I could go to on that. And, you know, like I've been thinking too of some keynotes and some presentations. And one of the things, frankly, I am so shocked at, absolutely shocked at, is when I talk about the velocity of information, the book, right? And it's less than two years. The events in it are less than two years ago. Well, now they're two years ago. But, um, and people be like, whoa, like, um, yeah, I mean, the book is well laid out. It's very cited and it's accurate stuff, but they're like, I forgot about this, right? Or again, I forgot, right? The mystery memory or, or they didn't think it was as extensive as it was. Like I go back and I have, I have diagrams in the book that were custom made. And in December of 2020, no, in November of 2020, we had AOC and other people in, you know, uh, Congress, right? Elected positions, um, uh, leadership business positions who were mentioning what's called truth and reconciliation or basically committees that should come forward. I mean, you can find these, like, search for them now, but some of these have been scrubbed. But um, that was that was public discourse of saying, yeah, everybody who was, who was for the previous administration, which had been voted out or, you know, was for some of these things. We need to identify who these people are. It's kind of like now, right? These things coming out of, if you supported the trucker convoy in Canada and you donated $10, like, you know, your information is going to be out there and people know who you are. And, um, but truth and reconciliation was we have to find out who these people are and we have to punish them or reeducate them. That's what truth and recon reconciliation is. Um, and it's like, whoa, that happened. And it's, you know, it's in a diagram. We get into it as this whole velocity of information. And then part of the velocity of information is velocity, speed, and direction toward you. And is it, it's happening very fast. Like, how much are do you accept? There's this thing, wet bulb. You get saturated, and it just kind of rolls off. And that's one of those things, like, a, a lot of people just weren't ready to even think about that. It, it existed, though. So when I bring that up and say, yeah, here's citations, you can, here's whatever I've got, you know, I've got the receipts on everything, like every, everything I cite, I've got every single article or screenshots of it, or, I mean, I have ultimately everything if the links no longer show up, but um, people be like, whoa, I, for, I forgot, right? That's what they'll say. I forgot. And it's like, no, you didn't forget. I think that has to be very explicit in a chapter. You did not forget that this happened. It was too sentinel to forget. You just you ch you chose to not remember it right um or how the media shifted into propaganda changed it so you misremembered it but you didn't forget it like it was too big of an event for you and too many people to go through that you didn't forget it um so the misremembering the long con via the memorial that's a good title um so, yeah, uh, disinformation versus mystery. I mean, that is, uh, I think, Jim, I think right there, that is the introduction. I think that is the introduction to the book.
because what you want to do right away in the book is you want to say here there, you know, all of us and throughout history and here's some, you know, we'll get into these have different memories of things that we've all gone through shoulder to shoulder, and we will remember them differently if separated five minutes apart from that. Right. Um, we'll give different accounts if we're interviewed it happens all the time. Um, but, um, what is disinformation, which has to do with propaganda and deep fakes and avatars? And what is misremembering? Misremembering is probably more of a psychological defense or a psychological wet bulb where you're just saturated and you're just like, you've offloaded a lot, cognitive offloading I write about. So um, some of that is sloth, right? We just don't want to attune to things as, as much, soak up the details. Or, you know, even like the flashy stuff that would have been really, you know, like the World's Fair a hundred years ago, people never forget. I mean, now you're just used to these things. I mean, think about, you know, like a jumbotron at a football stadium that is 100 feet long and 50 feet high. And just like all these amazing colors and graphics and stuff. And it's like now, I mean, it's just run of the mill, right? If you go there, it's like if you go back to the Houston Astrodome and that scoreboard you know, when they open that up in the 60s and stuff, there's nothing like that, you know. So I think it takes more to create something that really stands out. Um, but yeah, so so there's going to be this point of saying, here's the propaganda side, which we'll get into, and here's your psychological side. <coughs> and both of these have existed probably forever. You know, like propaganda is what got us Yellowstone National Park, for example. Um so, um, in, you know, kind of, I don't know if it would be disinformation there as much as propaganda, but, um, but then, yeah. So then I think right away in the book, you'd start to, to point it out to people say two things. One is like, things that are specifically done to fool you, you know, and like nature has its own camouflage too. Right. So we already, that's already built into, our hardwired thinking, but then this whole kind of this misremembering of, of things. And, um, and, you know, and part of it, there's, that'd be fascinating too. And, you know, like misremembering too, is like we, are, so in my book, my book is uh, 64,000 words, philosophy of information. And 10 years ago, the average nonfiction book would have been like 75,000 words. And 20 years ago, it'd be like 85,000 words. Some A trend right now in nonfiction is you can you can be about 50 to 70,000 words in nonfiction, maybe 50 to 75,000. And the reason is people just, they're reading blog posts, they're reading Twitter, social media. They do not want to read for a long time. So again, 20 years ago, and, and I think these... I have these these graphs and stuff like that. And that's one thing when I wrote philosophy of information, I wanted to make sure I was in that 60,000 word range because I knew anything longer would be harder to to kind of sell to keep people's attention. And then once you get shorter than 60,000, then it's a value thing. Like, oh, I'm not going to pay for something that's, you know, 140 pages long or whatever. But, um, but that's really good. That's really good. So versus this misremembering, and I can bring in stuff I learned from being an expert witness also in that there's this phrase called, you just have to throw enough 
dust into the jury's eyes. And what that, the one of the examples I heard on that was like, um, it was a story where uh, a court case, someone was convicted of, um, it was a court hearing in, in the, the case was that somebody had drugs in their refrigerator, right? That's where the police had located these drugs. And as they started to interview either police or other people who came in and like found these drugs, the attorney was saying, well, when you enter the place, so like what was the first thing you saw? And then they might say, well, there was a couch. Well, where was the couch? Like show us on this diagram where was this couch. What color was the couch? Was it carpet or was it, you know, what, what was the floor? And then so they'd ask these questions that people didn't really tune into, right? They didn't have it down. So pretty soon, you know, you would, or you, by the time you got to the question of the drugs in the fridge, the question was like, what color was the fridge or what else was in the fridge? And people could answer that. So if you have a jury and, and the, you know, the attorney is asked eight questions and the, the responding person has got six of those wrong, like, you know, the carpet versus tile or the color of the couch or, by the time you get to where there are drugs in the, refri the refrigerator, the jury's got the doubt, like the liar's dividend, right? They're like, this guy's been wrong on six things that were asked. Like, how does he know really if there were drugs or even if they're authentically drugs or there's like a picture or something like that? So, so this is Sast is bailing. See you, Sast. Take it easy on that uh, cannonball run. Thanks, buddy. Um, working memory. Yeah, Heath. Jim, if you're multitasking, it's like an old, fast, single-core CPU. It appears you're doing many things at once, but actually you're switching attention tasks rapidly. Yeah, right on, buddy. Good way to put it. Great way to put it. Great way to put it. Um, I multitask listening to Doc's show by also working and contemplating whether or not I'll wear pants again. Oh, bacon. Um, I can hear the difference if you drop them off in glass to pick out the good ones, 82. Copper, oh, this is coins. Okay, zinc and yeah. So um that is crazy. Agorizer rings true. An old um simple test for good coins versus cheap copies. So yes. All right. So guys, um few things here. One is this uh book. So velocity of information released April 1st. Um, it is out there in hard copy, paperback, and ebook. So I strongly encourage you, if you're a fan of you know my work in School of Errors, this is an excellent book. Also, um, please uh, consider taking the time to contact your local library. Just find the website, send an email, and it can be, you know, just a couple sentences. Hey, I think we should have this book in our collection. It's really well cited. Well put together. I I know the author from uh, other work that he's done. That could be it. And libraries, if they hear it from their patrons, will typically buy those books and put them in their library. So that would be great. The other book, which is the most honest book ever written about the three billion dollar school safety industry, and just a great book to have for anyone who's a parent. And so a really great uh, and way to analyze the nine eleven Harbor rescue. Five hundred thousand people in nine hours. Uh, right here, School of Errors. This is uh, being released in audiobook and paperback this summer, even though this book came out in 2019. I narrate it, the audiobook, or I'm finishing narrating it. I'm finishing Friday. 
So that will be out through Findaway Voices. So we get to hear Doc, right? Professionally narrate it. So thankfully, my sound engineer, you know, cuts out all of my mistakes. <laughs> he said we we could have just this entire track at the end where all we do is all the outtakes. And I said, yeah. Um, so thankfully, like he is, he's a great guy. And uh, so it's it. I had a couple people listen to it because I said, you know, give me your feedback on tone and inflection and things like that. Because I have to learn getting better at it. Um, people are like, whoa, like, this is really good. Yeah, smash that like button. Thank you so much. Um, and I'll be like, well, yeah, <laughs> like this is a, don't have any impression, but this is a single take here. Like this has been professionally engineered. Like what I'm sharing with you here, this is all, all worked on. So, um, yep, school safety, right? School bears. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so deep fakes. Um, false takes. Deep fakes have progressed a ton since 2019. 2019, they were identified as by Congress as a problem, right? Overtly saying we need to have ways to make sure elections, information, intelligence we get, information people get, um, right? That we have, we can identify what's authentic versus what is avatar realism, deep fakes, and then also how to counter that, which I don't think any, but they're anywhere close to doing that at least not overtly. Um, the The bigger parts of this are probably not going to be as much Congress and the intelligence community, but it's going to be in our schools and our workplaces. Um, again, in our communities, how it might impact us. Uh, so I think it's going to get very granular, granular there. And I know for one, uh, teaching classes in school leadership that there are not policies for this, there are not procedures to assess this. Um, so it is a it is it is pretty crazy. Um, so I think that's that's going to be a big thing. I'm going to have a case study this fall in my superintendent class, uh, specifically built to a deep fake scenario. Um, I'm running it by a couple soups. Um, from former classes to see if there's anything like they would change or throw in there or, you know, oh, like here'd be a really cool twist to put into it. But we, what we try to do is to go back into policy, like, okay, what policies come into play? And then like, what would be your procedures? And obviously, are you going to put this person on leave? How are you going to investigate, corroborate? And what about, you know, liars, dividend and reputations and stuff like that. So, um, I think that Fox Sports video, um, so let's just find it here if we can. Fox Sports MLB plus fans. Yeah, I actually found the video. Not bad. Interesting. All right, so let's bring this up. Interest, I could find it this fast. Okay, this might not have the audio because I don't have it up in a browser, but it doesn't really matter because it's mostly video. So let's watch it. Um, why won't this here? 
Okay, so this was shown, this is the video that I referred to. So let's check this out. This is from Fox Sports. And this was on their Twitter. It's, well, I'm pulling it off their Twitter account right now. So this is where they said, um, we can put fans in the stands, right, to make it look more um, authentic, right? Because it would seem weird to watch a game and not have the background noise and fans and stands. So let's watch this video. It's only 37 seconds long. So look at this now. Okay. So here are the people, thousands of virtual fans. So like that looks a little cartoonish there, but like that didn't, right? Like right there. I mean, if you're just seeing that in a split second as this goes through, like, uh, again, you know, let's say you're not hyper analyzing this. You, you already have expectation bias that there will be people in the stands and you'll hear baseball noises and stuff like that. So you only have to get people so far down the road, but let's look at this. So, I mean, things like this, like right, right there, that could be plausible, right? I mean, if you see that as a, a shot like this audience, right? None of these people are here, right? But again, this could be plausible um, because people are already sold on this, right? Um, well, let's just keep going. So, right, the people in the background, none of these people are there. But again, this guy's standing on the seat. I don't know what's up with him, but... Uh, for the most part, right, you expect these people to be there. Nobody's there. So just create it. Um, wearing their team's colors. So, again, these are all <laughs> – this this dude's out of his <laughs> – I don't know anybody kind of has, like, the stance, but, you know, otherwise, right? I mean, you just – so um, – so look how they're changing this in real time. So this shot, right? If you're not paying attention, looks fairly accurate. That's obviously not real. So just anyway, um, I don't know. That video was disturbing to me that that was that was not that it was done, right, but the capability. Because then you have to start thinking, what else could you do with this, right? I mean, even think of a realtor, right? Like you could manipulate people walking around doing things in a neighborhood to make it look more appealing to somebody. Um, I mean, there, there are just so many ways that that could be used. Um this is from um, John Rice. Doc, do you, what do you think of checking in boxes for actually solving problems in any arena? I'm a uh, I'm not a check the box guy. I um, I'm solving problems right I'm Apollo 13. Solve the problem. <laughs> I, we had a political um, debate here. You know, I'm running for office, and there was a point during that where. I don't know. I don't know what the topic exactly was. Might have been roads something but the word this is complicated to apply for 
whatever grants or, you know, trying to figure out the budgeting or how much a road spiders and whether you can seal it and stuff and versus like replace it. And, and there was a point when people just started using complicated over and over again. And I, I jumped in and I said, I don't care for this whole complicated thing, right? We could, when you use complicated so many times, it becomes kind of an excuse, right? It's a, it's a low key. You, you just say, well, it's too complicated. Well, right. I get it. Like things are complicated and things have been complicated through time. Right. Um, but we can acknowledge that there's complexities in something, but we, uh, we also have to say, but we're going to have an action on this. We're going to make a decision and do something. Um, so that was the part that I, I was very vocal on is saying, you know, we have to, we have to be very aware if you're an elected leader of how much you use the word, um, things are complicated. Um, so Jim is saying, wow, amazing. So, yeah. So that's in the velocity event. So imagine, you know, that information comes to you and directly to you, you're watching, you know, the, that's the that was the game where I had the example before in it, which I wrote or I, I gave up. Like, imagine if you're one of a thousand people who are actually at that game, and then your friend texts to you and says, "Oh, it looks like there's a lot of people there, and you know, must be a long line stuff." You're like, "Nope." Um, Ten last time I checked, there's twelve cyclone miles. Whoa! I don't know what that was. Um, the answer is anything you want. So, um, so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, guys. So I've got this baseball field over here. Um, the whole what is real thing is going to get to be a, you know, and then we butt up against the metaverse, right? Um, so, yeah, it's... At some point, I'm going to sit down and start to draft a timeline out or an outline out for the the book. I, and I tend to write chronologically too, like um, when I assemble things. But um, I I I think after tonight, like I've got a little better idea of. I think there's disinformation versus misremembering, and the books now tend to focus more on disinformation and propaganda that are out there. Um, but I, I don't see as many books. I don't know if I've really seen books come and talk, bridge the, the other side of saying, here's what, here's what memory is. Right. And here's how memory has changed with, um, over time. And then there's also, you know, we re the more stimuli we have in our environments, um, the, the really, again, that serial attention, the less we really hone in on. So in any day, like a, a lot of things just, um, just pass you by, right. That you have no, idea, you're just not tuned into that's always happened to some extent, but now with more and more things happening, I mean, there's like some weird stuff of like, like the computer monitor phone you're looking at right now, if you're doing that, like the millions of colors like that can be produced are colors that some of us, you know, and humanity have never seen before uh, outside of having like CRTs and TVs. Like, so 
hundred years ago, like people would have never seen these combination of colors. Like they're totally new to us and blending of sounds and stuff like that. So there are all these things that are new for us to process also, which are probably thousands and thousands of things that didn't exist a hundred years ago. So how do bodies and minds more like, you know, but bodies also like your perceptual skills of eyes and ears and things like that. But how is all of this stuff processed and how does it get sorted? We know pareidolia, things try to get patterned, but, uh, but what does it mean? Um, so Tim Pool, or wait, uh, Tim Pool uh, stopped saying it because he got memed for it. Um, yeah, I'm not, the Tim, the whole Tim Pool stuff is getting really thin for me. Like, to me now, I mean, dude, whatever's happening with you, like, don't always bring it out on the internet. You know, if these people are coming over to your house and whatever, like, the first couple times, I guess I get it, but like that only will amplify this for you. So then it's, you know, the question is, are you doing this to bring attention to not saying you're causing this event, but your attention again to the event is that causing the event to happen again and again and again. So it's, I don't know. I'm, I've really cooled on all the Tim Pool stuff. I'm just not there. Birds aren't real. Oh, no, John. Tim Pool deserves memes. Yeah. I'm not. I, yeah. I, I'm just not a fan of Tim Pool anymore. So just not. I don't think he handles his situations uh, very well. Um, so that's just one. The overuse of the phrase is complicated. Yeah. That was, that was one when I, the room went silent when I got into that and then the news asked me about it on the way out and some other people like asked me about, it. I think it, it, it won me over some people who are in the, the audience of the debate. And, but like, I clearly, I, I mean, I just, from my time and school administration, just other things is I, I just don't go for that stuff. There's non-negotiables. There are points of time you have to be informed and you have to make decisions on what you have before you, right? Um, if you sit there on Apollo 13, right, and you're like, oh, it's complicated. Like, we've got this and this. It's like, okay, what do they have up there? Let's replicate it down here. And we have to work the problem and solve it. And part of that is once you do that for people, they... Uh, it's almost a shock to some people like, Oh my God. Um, and, but then they, they move forward. Like they're no longer spinning because you've just said, well, we're moving forward from here. There's, a, we're not going to sit here and try to analyze a situation anymore or, you know, whatever, because you can get lost in this. It's, it's complicated. So, and again, I think it, I actually, I think what I said too, is I, I, I said, I think this term, when we have people like constituents right in the audience and we're saying things as government, you're saying things are complicated with rules and that, but everybody out here has things that are complicated with how they're managing their own lives, their own budgets, their homes, right? Their home, you know, maintenance, their families, healthcare, all these things, navigating um, how to deal with inflation. Like all these things are complicated. So for us to, as a government, right, to say these are complicated is dismissing fact that everybody here has very complicated matters that they 
have dealt with and continue to deal with all the time. So let's not use this word like, you know, um, let's be objective. Let's just describe things as they are and make a decision what we're going to do on something, which might be we decide there's nothing that's going to be done on this. It could be, it be, could be cost prohibitive. So that was one of the things is like, there's some, you know, areas where water doesn't sufficiently drain from the city and it's the second oldest city in our state. And so to, to remedy some of these things could take up the entire city budget for three years, which would be cost prohibitive. You couldn't do that. So there you just say, you have to make a decision in these, this scenario, you, you can't do anything. You, you can't functionally do things with the funding, right? Unless you got some grant or something. So you can't do it. That's the decision. You can't do it. Um, but that's also different than saying it's too complicated to do, you know. Um, anyway, I, I I do not like words like that, and when those are when those are used, um, especially if they get used over and over again. But yeah, some people contact right away, like or like afterwards, uh, coming up to me and and stuff, and I'm like, you know, yeah, so it's not to represent I, that I I don't appreciate people, you know. And, and the work that's been done and everything. But I, I, I think, again, we have to listen to what we say. And then also, um, you know, anyway. Um, Bacon, I remember good old days. It's complicated. It was just a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, they use moving forward on facts. Of, facts matter tonight. I was uh, seriously peeved. Yeah, interesting. Um, Generates paralysis by analysis. Yep, it's complete. Yep. I dealt with so many. So what that leads to, and this is something I dealt with in, as a school administrator, what this leads to is people then will go to something easier to work on, right? So they want to be busy, but they'll change it. And they'll say, oh, instead of like doing whatever, we're going to look at um, a new committee for our report cards. So should we have, you know, should we get rid of A through F and replace it with meeting standards or below or like a one, two, three, or so it's like, okay, like I get it, but the complicated thing is you have a structural deficit where you're going to have to lay off teachers or close schools and you also have aging buildings and infrastructure, like things that have to be concretely dealt with that I, I know are complicated. And you can bring in someone else to study, like how your enrollment is going to be impacted over the next number of years. But you already have this information, and the more you study it isn't going to help you solve the problem. But what you do then when you go down this paralysis by analysis is you move to something else which takes up time and makes it look like you're doing something which is really a low-priority task. Um, and that's what I see people do. So put a, a cheap electric sump pump on a temporary measure. So, so yeah, it's Jim. It's flying rich. Yo, yo, yo. Our good friend flying rich. Living the life in the warm weather. Our friend flying rich. Hey, rich. So yeah, me for another few minutes. Hey, it's flying rich. So Flying Rich up in the uh, pinned comment is the link to my book, which uh, came out last week. So 
all you need to do, buddy, is email your local library and say, hey, I'm Flying Rich. I live here. This is my library. I want you to get this book. Here's the title. Here's the author. It's awesome. Thank you. In most cases, libraries will do that if you are a patron and you want it in your local library. So Rich is like, yes. So Rich was a guest on the show a while back, and we were talking about 3D printing and kind of the interface between 3D printing and disaster and safety, which I want to return to that sometime with Rich because I find myself talking about this more and more with people because um, the book philosophy of information gets into 3D printing as information, right? How suddenly information, right? Like can be shared in files. So you can 3D print something. You no longer need to necessarily share all of these components. If you have a 3D printer and Ender 3 or whatever and some filament, the information is these files, or it can be uploaded into a crowdsource and have many people work on it from all over the world to solve a problem and then get it back into a file. But let's say there was a disaster. And as Rich was was saying, like you could use a 3D printer if you could get it into a disaster area to, to help print geodesic domes, like would be strong and you could put supplies in them, maybe shelter very short term, like kind of very basic quick stuff, but you could do it. And so, but where does, where's the next step on that? In the next step, like, because I think 3D printing is going to be this major asset for disaster response, um, particularly maybe like after natural disaster response. So, you know, let's, you know, kind of think about that, think down the road and, and, you know, if you could bring in something like that, what might you be able to, and what make, what might make sense to provide five hours after a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake and what, what might, you know, is there a 3D printable filtration system or, you know, whatever, or who knows? I don't know. But um, I think there are some really cool things there. So I want to come back to that. So, so Rich, one of the things, too, is like if you can think of um, or if you see anything coming up, uh, just kind of put that in the back of your mind. Rich is saying, I printed more new parts for a pool chlorine generators. So one of the videos uh, Rich made um, before he was on the show that we had talked about is he has a had a pool cleaner, like a vacuum cleaner, but it's made to go into a pool. And some of the bearings had gone bad on it. And uh, he had then printed the replacement bearings. And it was a little bit of a trial, like to see which bearings would hold up and then to redesign them a little bit and things like that, but then came up with a functional solution, right? Of doing it very cost effectively versus building new and uh, and and then had a, the video with it and stuff like that. But it's those type of things, you know, like when I wrote in the Velocity of Information, there are still many, many, many people who think 3D printing is just, it's a hobby, right? You know, people are printing flutes and, you know, articulated robots in their basement and that's kind of the extent of it and you know what i put out in the velocity of information was i said the reality is 3d printing is you know where we're moving to very rapidly from just in time to 3d printing part of the whole supply chain thing is like the big big people in charge are you going to invest more in 3d printing or are you going to invest more in just in time knowing just in time is leaving um, 
Uh, so you kind of got forced closer to 3D printing because of the pandemic, but not quite there yet. But, you know, just like microwaves kind of became commonplace in homes, 3D printers will probably be commonplace in a lot of homes in five years, 10 years. Or, again, you're going to go to your auto parts store and say, I need this fuel pump or whatever. They'll take the, the SKU and or they'll take the part number and they'll just they'll print it right it'll be there and they can print uh 3d printers now i've been retweeting many of these printing metal and then you get into these questions too of like what if you can print things then what does it mean for the manufacturer so do they have you have a subscription then but then also you know what if you're creating stuff on your own so there's all of these kind of weird things that come together but but I think I think it's very exciting. But I I also strongly note in the book that one of the one of the reasons the supply chain issues um, have manifested again. The book went to press in September two thousand one, so it was not where we're at now. Things have exasperated exacerbated. But it's, you know, is there's a movement toward um, thanks, Rich. Um, let's build it up. Yeah, thanks, buddy. So, so there's there's this this there was warehousing, you know, in the 1980s. So, build things and and produce things. You put them in a warehouse and you ship out of the warehouse. And that's where you'd always have like old stock, right? That would be discounted and moved out. You have to retool to like build new things. Stuff like that. It'd be a pretty big process. Um, then just in time, got quicker, so you didn't have to warehouse things, but you still had to retool. Now, 3D printing. You don't really have to do the retool, right? You have to refill them and some of the other things and, and stuff, but it's more of a informational process. So you're quicker and more efficient, more local, because you can have these printers either in your home or in your community, right? If it's different things. So you might be placing an order for whatever, an online order from Walmart, and maybe a third of the items that you get will just be printed in store. So instead of being on a shelf, whatever it is, is going to be there and then it'll be part of your order. So, um, and these things are already happening, which I wrote about in the book, like General Electric is, has done a number of these things and, and it's just where we'll be adopted. And I wrote something too, which I, I always have to kind of step back when, pe when people respond to it, because I said, there are a number of 3d printed, um, like chocolates and stuff uh, like food and i you know there's companies that are 3d printing um entire kind of meals right and what they're saying is and and there was a it was on jimmy kimmel there was a chef who does only 3d printed stuff and he's saying yeah, it's, it's still early right like and a lot of the stuff isn't there but and i'm not i am not trying to say that you're going to eat 3D printed food and we're not going to have uh, genuine steak and stuff like that. That's not what I'm trying to say in the book at all. And that's where maybe I needed to be a little more explicit is I'm not endorsing this. I'm just saying though, these things are technically happening. 3D printed food is, is actually happening. And these models of re uh, retrofitting your very common um, um, fast food restaurants with 3D printed um, foods is in the works, like, and it's being done in some countries right now. Um, so that is something that will be happening. So I, but it was weird because as I go back, like, that's the one point people would say, 
oh, I don't know if, you know, or, or this whole thing of like eating 3D or I'm not going to live in a pod. So well, I never wrote in here, you're going to live in a pod. But the 3D food thing, though, is like likely going to happen. And I don't know to what choices things will be out there, but I said it's, it's an information and technology thing from that standpoint, right? Um, if you can uh, save, you know, these businesses, quote unquote, save money by loading up and having these things printed, that's the path that they're going to go. And the other part is then if you have diabetes or some restrictions or whatever, you could have these things matched to your profiles. Now, again, I'm not, again, I'm not advocating, I'm not saying there won't be consequences or all this other stuff, but I'm just, I am saying this will happen. How widely it gets accepted, I don't know, but it will happen. Um, and that's going to be kind of uh, just kind of a weird thing because I'm glad I wrote about it because people remember it and they get it's a very strong response because people don't want to think of eating something, right? Like, you know, a potato or something. And it's like, oh, like that was a potato that was just printed four minutes ago versus like, you know, um, dug out of the ground and washed and stuff like that. So, and then really, is it a potato or is it, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I'm glad it got the strong response, um, because it makes people kind of think, think about, you know, that type of stuff. Um, but it, it does, it, it gets into some really weird, um, weird, weird ways to think about information when you get 3d. Because as Rich was saying, um, you can get into um, you 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 can get other people to collaborate their mind power and their creativeness and, and their talents with you to solve these technical problems, where you couldn't necessarily do that in just in time or warehouse manufacturing, right? But you could get these people in in almost real time to come together to create these solutions which was happening with some of the, the ventilator parts during the pandemic, early pandemic, which I wrote about. People are lifting the copyright and trademark stuff and saying, go at it if you can make these things. And so, John Rice, all the Beyond Meat at my store is always on clearance. Yeah. So, and I think, I think this would, you're right. And so I think this is, the 3D printed stuff is probably different than this all Beyond Meat stuff. Um. So, but yeah, but like Boca burgers have been pretty strong for quite a while. Like I remember those have been out for probably like 10 or 15 years, like the Boca burger, the veggie burger. But, um, Andrew, have you seen my last print? There's Rich. Um, I should watch it. Yeah. Rich, Rich is a cool guy. A lot of, uh, awesome videos, just great content. Um, and, I, if I would have known Rich um, a year ago, I would have included an interview with him about those pool parts um, that he that he was printing, and I would have I would have had that image. I would have put that in the book of saying like with three D printing, and interviewed and, and included a part where he he shared you know like to put this information out. Then once you have some issues with it, and let a a global community come in and solve it which will be that speed of that information, velocity, and direction, people coming in to you with these solutions that would have been, uh, you couldn't conceive these ideas, you know, 15 years ago. And now 
right? You you have kind of this massive talent base to solve and refine and advance things. But then what happens with corporations that have billions and billions and legacy into these things? How are they going to try to protect their territory? They're going to try to, to dominate and become subscription-based and try to manipulate government to pass laws. Can these two things coexist? And I don't know. Um, but yeah, when I read that, I'm like, boom, here's exactly where I would have put Rich in this book. So, uh, but I will say if I do present this on uh, like PBS or keynote on it, I am going to bring in that uh, interview with Rich and, and branch that branch that off. So, but uh, yeah, check out Rich's channel. Uh, Bacon can probably share it. Um, so, farthest I see, three D printed food going will be closer to dessert and stuff using grains, actual food or foodies. So, yeah, and I I don't know, right? Could be any, could be any of those things. Um, you know, when I when I worked early in my career, we we're talking like thirty years ago. Um, in speech language pathology, like in the medical setting, one of the things you were also responsible for <clears throat> swallowing dysphagia. And at that time, you know, you could have softened diets that you would write and then doctors would sign off on the orders for, for patients, right? Um, so, and with those, you know, it was like basically blending up a carrot and then putting it in a mold that looked like a carrot and squashing it back down. And that's what people got. So it was this kind of thing of like reconstituting things to look like they were more in their authentic form. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, bacon where all of that, this 3d printed stuff will go. And I, and I think there's right, this huge distrust in this environment right now saying, well, you know, then everybody's going to become dependent on a special food type of food filaments, right. For, uh, you know, there, so in that case, and what we lose farmland and we lose or how, what creates the filament or, I mean, I don't, there's just a lot of distrust, right. In, in that, I don't think, I mean, I don't think there's distrust in the 3d community. Um, there's distrust of, what would be incentives to, you know, drive in, into that direction. So um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, John is saying, take a while, guess what was one of the only things completely in stock during all of 2020? Um, soup? No. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, fake meat. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And Hawaiian pizza and Hawaiian rolls or whatever they call us. There's Flying Rich. Yes. As, that is an education. And I I want to um and it's I want to um yeah focus more in safety. And even maybe I'll just start out with a journal article of um the intersection of 3D printing and safety and build it off of some of the things that Rich and I talked about, like do a follow-up with Rich. And I think like a crisis response journal, I've written for them before and they usually will print. Um, if I come up with something that's usually pretty good and they'll be like, yeah, we'll go, we'll print it. Um, maybe I'll, I'll reach out to them and say, you know, like I'd, I'd like to do an article here about where I think 3D printing could interface with um, 
disasters, like in the very, very near term, like um, within the next year. If we just think about it, right? Like the technology is there. We just have to, we have to think about the deployment differently. And then, um, you know, kind of center on that discussion that I had with Flying Rich, geodesic domes, like maybe keep it to three things, like geodesic dome, a flute, which is always good, time of disaster. But um, I don't know. I'd have to come up with like two other things. I think the geodesic dome, certainly. And it would have to be something not super specialized. Something, though, that could be if you had a 3D printer, right, like an Ender 3, and you could get it and you had ample filament, right? So the thought is like you'd bring it into some area which was decimated by something. What would make sense in the first hours? So, hey, it's our friend John Crump Live. I know tons about deepfakes. I have a biometrics consulting business with some huge clients. So there you go. So isn't it just so crazy, right? And how, right, we we don't teach anybody, right, about... Um, Deep fakes. There's not a class on deep fakes, avatar realism, and stuff like that, which it seems there kind of should be, <laughs> just in general. Or like if you've been the recipient of this, what what's your next step? So I don't know. I've which is great. I mean, John and I should talk about this. Like I I I think it's gonna be there'll be like this, like the lifelong guy, there'll be some commercials or your insurance company. Like our in the last, I don't know, what is it, five, 10 years, our insurance company offers where you can, if your credit, if you're hacked, your personal information is hacked or your identity theft, they, you, you can have a, you can pay, right? And they'll, they have a plan where they come in and do some recovery and some stuff like that. And they, they cover and get your identity, help get your identity restored. But, um, but yeah, the deep fake stuff isn't necessarily, going to go down that path. It's more to convolute what is authentic versus not authentic. And, but you could wipe somebody clean off like John Ronson's. Um, so you've been shamed. Like people do not recover from these things with you know, strong liars dividend or, and usually in those cases, I, I have to make a correction. People have contributed to that Maybe something they've said has been taken out of context. They're not genuinely aiming to disintegrate themselves, right? But then, you know, a deep fake takes hold or avatar selective editing and it's done. Um, you, there's these people absolutely do not recover uh, from these situations. So, you know, what happens in that situation? Um, I don't know. So, um, oh, John here, look at him. Going back at, going back at Rich. So, whoa, John, yeah, John, John, what is going on here? John Ronson's a great, yeah. I've, I've, I've uh, have most of John's work. Plus, I, I download his uh, podcast on uh, BBC, so I listen to a ton of John Ronson. So, actually, when I narrate, I try to, I don't try to to be like John Ronson, but I, I, I tried to present a little bit in a John Ronson style. Cause I, he's much softer though, spoken than I am. Like when I narrate, 
but I love uh, John Ronson's work. Um, Malcolm Gladwell uh, also. So like, that's where I think my work kind of fits in with like velocity of information kind of in a, in a Ronson and Gladwell type environment. But, uh, but yeah. So if, if in a lot of like John Ronson's, um, the men who stare at goats, you can find on YouTube for free and listen to it. So it's just like one continuous, like MP3 file. But, um, yeah, I, it's, it's not hacked. I think he either put it out there or after a certain, it's been out for 10 years or something, but like, um, that's downloadable. But, uh, so yeah, John Ronson. And John Crump, my good friend, please do your shout outs here for the velocity of information, my book, which, which released on Friday. So yes, the velocity of information, which was, uh, as of today, number one in educational psychology, but, uh, glad that that book is out there. So right here, John Crump live. John is a phenomenal journalist. So, and much more, but yes, appreciate, uh, John and John and uh, I thanks John I appreciate that and and Rich so one one no but it's been cool to get to meet a lot of people through the book process and kind of the whole well, I appreciate it. yeah so I my pinned um, in the chat here is goes to the book my uh, the pin chat up above goes to the book just released on Friday. And 10 interviews, including, um, yeah, Clay Martin, Larry Lawton, America's Biggest Jewel Thief, uh, Linda Stone, former Microsoft VP, Morgan Rogue, um, 471 endnotes. It's a vibrant, terrific book of, like, basically uh, how speed of information, velocity, speed of direction, what's, what's changed, what's happening right now, and then kind of with this backdrop of uh, the year 2020 and 2021. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's a great book. It's already showing up in quite a few libraries. Toledo bought it <laughs> this morning. You could see through the interface that they are putting books in their libraries. So, um, but yeah, that is, uh, as it's the best work I've ever done. Um, school Bears is excellent. The velocity of information is, is the best work I've ever done. Uh, so he was saying, yeah, this, it is true. If right anytime contact you, it's easy. Here's my town. Find your library's email address. A couple sentences. Here's a book you should have in stock. You know, for your patrons and whatever. Here's the title. Here's the author. And um, a lot of times, a lot of times, they will buy it. So they they want to be informed. So did the Alaska winter make Morgan move to Texas? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I think um, they're kind of doing to the, to my knowledge is, Hey, thanks, John. Appreciate that. Leave a review too. If you purchase it, please, please, honestly, leave a review. Reviews are so big in, uh, in book sales and getting people aware of books, seeing libraries, other people. Thanks. Um, yeah. Th I think right when they moved up there, they were doing a, pretty significant renovation on the place. And, and then there's this big winter that hits. So um, I think they, they need to have a, uh, they, it wasn't, 
as far along when they had got there that property than to be winter ready. So, um, but no, Morgan is still a hundred percent awesome Morgan and doing all of her, all of her things. So, um, yeah. So thank you, John. And, uh, do have a library within walking distance if they finally, so you can be outside bacon, just yelling. So or print the cover of the book off and just like hold it up in front of you. Get this, this book. So, um, so yeah, I don't know anything more about, um, Morgan. So, uh, I, and she, I'm, I'm sharing this from her videos that she and her husband had shared because they were renovating the cabin they bought in Alaska, but the cabin they bought, I think was sight unseen. And when they got there, there was more work that needed to be done on it. And they, they needed to go like, what was it like a half mile with a four wheeler to get down to like their vehicle to get to a well and all this stuff. And, and, and I think there was a, a logistics point of like, um, that to try to get everything ready to like endure a whole winter there became, became an issue. Uh, but no, Morgan is still, she's, she's yeah. Producing absolutely awesome. Um, awesome content. Morgan rogue, rogue, uh, preparedness. So yeah. Um, and it was great to, uh, have her, um, interview her and Morgan is in, is in the velocity. She's also in the back. <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the quotes down here is from Morgan. So yeah, Morgan, uh, Morgan rogue. So she used to, to teach, um, classes on survival. Again, you could find all this kind of like on her, on her channel and stuff like that. And that's when I was researching learn more about her before I interviewed her for the book, but like, you know, 10, 15 people would sign up, you know, like how to, what things you could grow in like a more arid climate or, you know, these other things like she, she's like has done so much. Um, she's really Morgan is, uh, Morgan's terrific. So, um, so yeah, well, again, I am running for city council. The election is tomorrow. So by tomorrow night, this time, I'll probably know if I was voted <laughs> in as dist uh, district two council um, person. So in my district, we have a canal that is almost 200 years old that is uh, being um, restored for kind of a his historical um, uh, artifact, I guess you'd say for the community, right? It's not functional, but um, we also have a building from the fort, which was built here, the military fort from 1828 to 1845. And then there is, um, another building, uh, the Indian agency house built in 1832, which was used to, um, kind of between the government and the tribes in this area to negotiate trading. And, um, so those are all in my district. Um, so I do have a strong, like historical presence in my, in my district. So, which is a cool thing because when we moved here for about five years, I was a volunteer guide at the, guide at the fort. Um, but yeah, so I am, uh, 
I'm looking forward to to hopefully being elected on the city council. Um, I'm, you know, my my opponent would do a great job also. And, you know, so we had a good discussion at the debate. And I'm very thankful, too, that I have an opponent who is uh, very, um, how should I say, uh, re- respectable, like um, outgoing, upstanding person, right? So, you do, so you're, you're not in some kind of uh, campaign where someone is trying to, you know, negatively portray you or other things like so. You know that's not happening at all in my in my districts. So you know, respect for my opponent. I believe it's mutual. So as I said, you know, I think whoever gets voted in, um, it's a it's a win for the district. Um, the person that did hold the position after years uh, basically kind of retired and didn't want to run for re-election. So given their you know service, but so yeah, so I I. It's you know everyone kind of wants that that gotcha statement. I say I I think it's you know there'll be a there'll be a win at the end of of the night, however this turns out, and I really feel that way too. Like I'm not going to be like ah you know now I wouldn't run if I if I didn't you know want to be in here and to um, to have some uh, you know to have an impact on things, but. Again, if it if it doesn't if it doesn't happen, you know, then it doesn't happen. So, um, <laughs> uh, bacon is funny. You know what it, it might be is I um, with narrating the book on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I drink two gallons of either water or tea, two gallons, because I narrate on Wednesdays and Fridays, and I need to really really be hydrated in order to, um, you know, narrate for, you know, maybe three hours on those days. And it works. It really works to load up the day before. So, um, that's been working. Uh, Andrew's saying, Hey, remember the election in Virginia? That was a tie and they pull a name from a hat when they show the other person one, someone cried in the audience. Uh, I don't, but that is, uh, I, wow, wouldn't that be something? So I don't know. I, I'm not going to be crying if I don't, if, if I don't win. And, um, like I said, I, I, uh, I'm not running to try to defeat somebody. And I think there are, are two qualified candidates with, you know, the, the right thoughts in their mind who are running for district two. So, um, yeah, I, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of, it's kind of the way it is. Um, so it's, it, it's going to, if I, if I do get voted in, I am going to, over the next couple months, you know, I want, I want to go down to the city, um, garage, you know, the municipal center and get a tour and talk, you know, what's going on or can you take me around town, show me a couple of things, like not eat up your whole day, but like I want to go to the airport, which isn't necessarily owned by the municipality, but you know, there's interface there and you know who it seems like it's pretty busy on you know, smaller hobby planes, but you know, what's going on here and whatever uh, the sewer plant is, is updating, right? Because there's new phosphorus requirements for all of our state. 
So they're putting some things. So show me what's going on, you know, here. Uh, and what are, what are some of the issues? Um, so, but that, so I can actually see some of these, I mean, it's going to be obvious, you know, like fire department. Yes. I want to do a police department ride along, um, for, with the city. Right. So I, I, I want to get, I, I and then also, um, you know, I've met with a lot of people like residences, but now it's, it would change to some of the, uh, the businesses that are in my district. So let me, you know, can, can I come in and can you tell me what you do here? Because right. I want a better understanding we, in our community. One of the big things is we we're close to a big Metro where our state capital is 40 minutes away, which is growing and very vibrant, you know, a lot of business coming in. There's a lot of wealth in that area and it's kind of pushing down toward us as far as residential and, and some of the employment stuff. But, um, we don't have a lot of housing here. So the studies show, and one just came out uh, recently, like a few weeks ago, but more people drive here for work than live here, right? So every day, like 1,700 more people drive in a town of 10,000 than, than um, so the, and these people who drive in also typically live in more expensive areas and make higher, I forget, I'd have to go back to the study, but basically if the housing was here, these people, more of them would decide to live here, right? Um, but they don't live here because the housing isn't here. So the thought is to get the housing here, you get more people here and, you know, you would have these ripple effects. So we live, there's a interstate which cut, comes through the town and then, you know, Wisconsin River. So there's a lot of um, assets as far as like commerce and, and things like that. But housing has really been um, an issue. And if you're not growing with housing and population, then your coffers for taxes and stuff kind of get stagnant. So, um, so the good news is, right, that people are coming here to work. The jobs are here. The bad news is there aren't places for people to live. So that has to be one of the things, which is there's a large subdivision which has been proposed, which looks like it's moving forward. And if that one were to be put in place and city utilities run out to that one, conceivably you could have other subdivisions which would come forward. Again, developers come forward with subdivisions, cities put infrastructure in. Um, so there's this kind of, negotiation that happens with that, right? Like cities don't build the subdivisions. The, they put the infrastructure. It's the developers that put the buildings in and stuff like that. But um, so it is, it is this really, as I've said, as the next three years, in my opinion, which is the term, the decisions made in the next three years will impact the next 30 years of this community. I'm completely convinced of that. So that's where I said, I, you know, I'm good at interviewing, you know, looking at big sets of data. I've always done that. Making decisions, been put in high stakes decisions making, you know, as a school administrator, uh, millions of dollars of budgets, policy, stuff like that. Um, you know, the way that I've written books that I can research and I know how to analyze things. I, and, and again, interviewing people, understanding their points and things like that as well. It's a good strength of mine. Um, and also, yeah, making making decisions. So, 
um, Heath, good night, buddy. And uh, good show. Thanks. Thanks, Heath. I uh, recommend that book, buddy, to your library. Don't forget to watch video. Yeah, I got it. Imposter Puzzles. You got it. That's why I appreciate that the, uh, I always have the, I, I take a, some notes over here and then I can come back to the show and scan the chat and then I can pull the stuff out. So it's really good. All right. So everybody, I'm going to uh, leave us out the same, take us out the same way I, I brought us in. And um, I still need watch hours, by the way. I have, plenty, I have enough subscribers, but I need watch hours. <laughs> so, um, but let me, let me take us out here with a, a little commercial set. So hang in there and, um, all right, let's, yeah, let's do this. All right. Thanks everybody. Take care. Keep watching. As chaos erupts. Torrents of conflicting yet urgent messages gush from media outlets. What is the magnitude of the incident and what should people do to protect themselves? Dr. David Perodin clarifies human behavior during days, weeks, months, or even years of chaos. Reporter James David Dixon of the Detroit News proclaims, the velocity of information is an education in the way people react and adapt to change. Never has it been more important to sift facts and stories for truth and meaning. The velocity of information will teach you how people have done it in history, in the modern day, and even in prison. There are teachable moments on every page. Buy the velocity of information, human thinking during chaotic times. Available from your favorite bookstore or online retailer. A must-read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, A brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.